trying to score from the plug today. I sure could use a shot. Zannies are helping, but I need more. Guess I'll smoke some pot. I'm about to go insane. Sometimes I need to go where everybody does cocaine. And we always find a vein. I want to fix and do some blow. The troubles will go away. I want to be where everybody does cocaine. You shoot your dope, I'll smoke some crack. Junkies are all the same. I want to be where everybody does cocaine. episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, somewhere in West LA. Created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, a noble one, to serve alcoholics and addicts by means of using compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. Everyone that we know that has gotten to go to Oro has only said beautiful things about it. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, this potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, check out Oro. Even better yet, go to ororecovery.com right now and see for yourself. Read the reviews, check out Oro, get better. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is just getting better and better. It's like a fine non-alcoholic wine. It's just getting better with age. Fucking... I am a member of the Sober Buddy team. I'm proud to say I do Zooms every Wednesday. Our Zoom is like a well-oiled recovery machine. Sober Buddy does Zooms every day of the week. They have a platform online where sober people and people who want to be sober encourage each other to do positive things for their recovery. They have challenges that encourage you to do positive things for your recovery. It is very inexpensive, less than three very fancy coffees a month. 
They have a free 30-day trial period. Check them out at YourSoberBuddy.com or on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Come to our Wednesday morning meetings. It's pretty fucking great. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech, portable, breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive 50 bucks off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Please support our sponsors, and here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and uh, my daughter's addicted to her phone and TikTok. Just took her phone away. And I'm addicted to sweets. I just, uh, if you didn't know, I fucking, I just engorged myself in Trader Joe's, and it's really good. If you're at Trader Joe's, if you're, like, there's real Trader Joe people, and the thing that Trader Joe's obviously makes fine products. They've got great prices. They've got politically progressive ideals and and good insurance and and good benefits for their employees. But there's something very culty about Trader Joe's, like that they make everything. Like I just had the Trader Joe's mini graham crackers with dark chocolate and sea salt. They're really, really good. But there's just something unsettling about everything being made by Trader Joe's. And uh, Linda gets those for Nora, which I eat by the handful. She gets uh, these little chocolate cat cookies, which I still can't place what they remind me of in my childhood. They remind me of some chocolate cookie that I ate in my childhood, but it was not manufactured by Trader Joe's. And then she buys... The ridiculously addictive yogurt-covered pretzels. And that's not, I don't even know why they call that yogurt. How could that be yogurt if it's so sweet? That's the first sweet and salty thing that I'm really addicted to. And I just want to share a quick life hack with you. If you're looking for a real ultimate sweet and salty, I would take the yogurt-covered Trader Joe's pretzels or any yogurt-covered pretzels and dip them in Nutella. You will not be sorry. All right. I have a story and I have some notes I want to read. Linda and I went to see uh, the Outlaw Music Festival in Forest Hills. And, oh, first of all, I should say this. Hank Azaria is on the show this week. Fucking Hank Azaria from The Birdcage and Friends and my favorite movie, Homegrown. And Homegrown is an amazing culty weed movie with an all-star cast, including dopey alumnist Jamie Lee Curtis, not dopey alumnist John Bon Jovi, 
Billy Bob Thornton, Ryan Philippi, one of the uh, Dern sisters, John Lithgow. If you're looking for a great weed movie, check out Homegrown. Other Hank Azaria notable projects were Heat. He was in fucking Pretty Woman when he was a young man. He was in everything. He was in Godzilla, Celebrity, Mystery Men, Shattered Glass, Nobody's Perfect, Along Came Polly, Dodgeball. He's in everything. Happy Feet 2. I know that voice. He played Gargamel in the Smurfs, too. He's Hank Azaria. He's a big star. So he's on. But for my money, the most important thing that Hank Azaria is in, and God is he in it, is The Simpsons. He is Moe's voice. He is Chief Wiggum's voice. Snake's voice. And re- and many other voices. Comic book guy, until recently, Carl Carlson, Cletus, Professor Frank, Dr. Nick Riviera, Lou, Kirk Van Houten, Bumblebee Man, The Sea Captain, Superintendent Chalmers, Disco Stew, Duff Man. It's like ridiculous. We barely talked about The Simpsons, though. So just stand by. It is a very different kind of dopey episode today. I just have to say that. So let's let's hear it one more time for Hank Azaria is here. Very, very amazing. Anyway, Linda and I went to the Outlaw Music Festival in Forest Hills, which is where Hank Azaria is from. So let's hear it for Forest Hills as well. All right. Enough with all that. Um, the Outlaw Music Festival is in it's it's a huge festival. And if you look at the bill, it's got it's got Willie Nelson and it's got Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers, who I just saw in Park City. On the bill is also Lucas Nelson, who I just saw in Park City. And then it looks as though the bill changes depending on where you are in the country, where they are. So like on the bill in general, it's got Robert Plant and it's got Government Mule and it's got, you know, a bunch of acts. But our version of the uh, Outlaw Music Festival is the String Cheese Incident, Los Lobos, Bobby and Willie Nelson. And Linda and I got there late, so we missed Los Lobos, and I would have loved to have seen Los Lobos. Hold on, you want to hear a clip of when I waited on Los Lobos back in the day? Hold on. Hey, this is David Hidalgo from Los Lobos. This is a dopey, and don't do drugs. Anyway, I love I love Los Lobos. I love those guys. I don't remember how good how good a tipper they were, but uh, I love their music. Killer guitar players, killer music, uh, great singers, great. And their name means the wolves in Spanish. But we missed them. String Cheese Incident was better than I expected. Bobby's show was not nearly as good as the Park City show. We'll talk about that more on Patreon, I think. Sign up for Patreon if you like the show. If you like the show and you feel like you get a lot out of it, kick a little down to Patreon and you will get a lot of bonus material, including my review of Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers in Forest Hills. Willie Nelson was ridiculously great. He was 90 years old. He ripped through his set, and the piano player was Nora Jones, and she was incredible, incredibly uh, singing, incredible piano playing. I didn't even know it was her. Like I, I figured it out like as we were walking away and somebody mentioned it. She was so good, delightful, uh, and we should all hope to be as competent at 90 as Willie Nelson. But... As me and Linda are driving away, 
uh, through the night of Queens. All the hippies, shit ton of hippies are just out and about. And then we see some hippies running down, I think it, I don't even remember the name of the street. I don't know Queens particularly well. And they're holding balloons. And Linda's like, are those fucking nitrous balloons? And I was like, yes. And then I, I look up and I see more people with nitrous balloons on the streets of Queens. And I certainly don't hang out in Queens, uh, but I haven't seen nitrous balloons anywhere in a million years. And then we get to Forest Hills Boulevard, where the Long Island Railroad is, and we hear uh, a, a nitrous tank just going off, and everyone's holding, like, double-fisting nitrous balloons. And Linda's like, should we stop the car and get balloons? And I was considering it. But then I realized I, I, that would be a relapse. If I'm not at the dentist, I can't take nitrous. But we really pined to get nitrous balloons. And I saw, I post those memes on Instagram and I saw a nitrous mafia meme. Uh, so I, uh, I posted, it was really funny. It was like Tony Soprano as a nitrous mafia kingpin. And, uh, and Meadow says something like the nitrous mafia isn't really real. And we got all these comments and I want to read some nitrous comments that we got. Cause I think they're so funny. The first one. Okay. It says, I remember hearing of the Philly Nitrous Mafia when I was in Eastern PA for a few years. I laughed incredulously at such nonsense. My Wookiee friends quickly reminded me that they knew each other, they knew other Wooks who had been violently assaulted by the Mafia at All Good Festival in West Virginia because of failure to pay debts. Not just assaulted, but assaulted with empty leftover tanks. To this day, I roll my life, I roll my eyes at the suggestion of a pack of white boys with locks assaulting other white boys with locks for lack of payment. The story's myths were deep. Philly was a hotbed of nitrous tanks. Apparently, the nitrous mafia had connections with actual Italian mafia types who had the connections with dirty dentists who would sell the nitrous mafia tanks and tanks uh, of the stuff. Anyone have any dirt on the Philly Nitrous Mafia? He asks, but he doesn't put a question mark. I have that question, too. If you have a Nitrous Mafia story, please send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Voicemail, email, whatever. Send it. Here we go. Here's another another Nitrous note. O OMG. I don't like to say that. Say, oh, my God. Seriously experienced the Nitrous Mafia last night walking out of Goose at the Fox in Oakland. It's such a war zone. I hate it. Fuck that hippie crack. I never did it on Dead Tour. I was a stuck-up Puritan and then tried it at Jazz Fest for the first time in 98 and had so much fun and couldn't believe how hard it made me laugh. But now the nitrous sucks, and the whole scene outside of shows is disgusting. It's horrible noise pollution and such a lame vibe. Already devoured the Harold episode. It was awesome. Felt very privileged to have met him and spent some time in Park City. Such a lovely person. And what is up with Jay? My first introduction is he is a good friend of yours who you're trying to help. He does not seem ready to make the change. Love you, Dave. And that's Alexandria. That's a lady that we met in Park City. And um, nitrous is just tempting for me. But it just shows that I have a lot, a lot of learning to do. Uh, do you guys have any good nitrous stories? Send it in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I love nitrous stories. And I love people who refer to hippies not as wooks, but to wookies. I love that. Before we get to the great Hank Azaria, I want to remind you guys 
that this week, the end of this week, a week from tomorrow, is DopeyCon. And it's not only DopeyCon, it's DopeyCon IV. And I am incredibly excited for DopeyCon IV. We are doing new stuff. The lineup is out of control. Dr. Drew, Jessa Reed, Mackenzie Phillips, Hank Azaria, Sean Weiss, Rich Voss just signed up to do some comedy. Riley Walker is playing a great cocaine song. And of course, the great Ray Brown, Aaron Carr, my dad, Linda, a gaggle full of dopes, Katz's. We have a few tickets left. If you want them, they are available at the website. So go to dopeypodcast.com. Get uh, tickets if you want to come. It's going to be, un, as Ishmael would say, unbelievable. I just found some old Ishmael recordings, too. So if you want to hear old Ishmael recordings, go to Patreon, because I'm putting them all on Patreon. One of our great sponsors who is sponsoring DopeyCon IV has events going on all across the country. They're called The Phoenix. Go to www.thephoenix.org slash dopey. I know this lady in Boston named Mary. She's getting involved with The Phoenix. The Phoenix is all about having fun in recovery, getting healthy, and having a good time. We're doing a storytelling event with The Phoenix in December. They have pickleball tournaments. They have fucking beautifully hosted hikes, CrossFit training in Philly with Chris Spelina. You would not believe all the stuff that The Phoenix has to offer. And just hold on. I hope you're sitting down. It's all free. They do not charge you anything. All that they require for you to participate is 48 hours of clean and sober time. So if you have 48 hours, please check out thephoenix.org slash dopeypodcast. I want to say one more thing before we play Hank Azaria. I'm like crazy excited about DopeyCon IV, and I'm excited for the lineup. But I have to be honest, the thing I'm most excited about is to see all of you guys, everybody in the community that's going to show up. And if you are thinking about coming, please come, because we are all connected out here. I know it's, it's corny to say it, but especially the old-time dopes. If you are an old-time dope and you're anywhere near New York City in the next little bit and you want to come to DopeyCon, just let me know. If you can't afford it, let me know. We can scholarship you a ticket. I mean, and if you have money and you want a scholarship ticket, that's very grimy. So don't do that. If you have money, come. You will not be disappointed. It will be incredible. Katz's will be there. I believe there will be Othello cookies. There will be non-alcoholic mocktails. There will be some kind of non-alcoholic wine. I don't know what that is. Before we get to Hank Azaria, I need to give a major shout-out to Up Full Life podcast creator and host, B. Getz, who wrote this amazing piece about the Park City Song Summit. He wrote really nice things about me. He is a very positive person. Check out upfullife.com. Support the homie out in Oakland, Begets. And if you're looking for another recovery podcast, you must check out Nat and Mike's podcast, Recovery in the Middle Ages. If you want to hear the latest in recovery, science, books, movies, all things addiction and recovery available wherever you get your podcasts, also available at recoveryinthemiddleages.com. They are two recovering middle-aged dads trying to make it in suburban life without anyone knowing they're fucked. All right, here we go. It is now time to listen to 
the amazing man Hank Azaria. I cannot tell you how much, uh, there's a Yiddish word, nachis, which means pride, how much pride and, and joy and excitement and gratitude I have that Hank Azaria is on Dopey. So without further ado, straight out of Forest Hills and my dad's apartment, the great Hank Azaria. <laughs> I'm in awe. I'm in shock and awe. No, you're not. Shock and awe. Shock and awe. Well, that is that's the effect I do go for. Shock and awe. <laughs> it has to be understood that uh, you've had an incredible impact on me. An incredible positive impact on me. I hope it was positive. All right. Are you a Simpsons guy? Is I'm that a the sick thing? Okay. Simpsons person. Okay. And when I say sick, I mean... I remember where I was when uh, Tracy Ullman show came out. Mm -hmm. I remember. And then we, my crew of people was so invested in the Simpsons. We would make VHS tapes that were four hours long without yeah. commercials. <laughs> and we would sit and get wasted and watch it over and over and over again. And it's, it's like embryonic. Now I am with Hank Azaria. Hello. Multiple Emmy award winner. You know, big time Hollywood actor, fucking cultural icon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Wow, what an intro. Thank you very much. And Mo, thanks you as well. Mo the bartender is very oh. pleased to be here, David. Incredible. And, and <laughs> I want to just get this out of the way. Years ago, when we started the show, you know about Chris who passed away and he worked yeah. for Joe Schrank. And well, that I didn't know. Yeah, Chris worked at Joe's spot. Uh, in Brooklyn, the loft. Oh boy, where I've been a few times, and Joe's our mutual friend, who's a uh, lovely guy and majorly in the recovery world. And I didn't know that uh, there was a connection to Crystal. Yeah, Chris worked for Joe at the loft, and Chris was such a fuck up at the loft. Oh, was he? That he was a manager there who would take ecstasy while managing the loft. Oh, okay, that's probably against policy. Definitely against policy. Locked yeah. himself into a room. Like while he was managing it. And for some reason, I love that story the most. He locked himself in a room. Okay. Uh, while he was the manager. And there was something <laughs> about urine bottles of the of the people who were there. It was very dark. Maybe that was his management method. Maybe he, uh, you know, was, was approaching it from a different angle. There was no method to his management. <laughs> but Joe has been on Dopey several times. And Joe was at DopeyCon. Joe has always been a friend of the show, a, re a recovery advocate. And me and Chris used to talk about you coming on the show. And, oh, yeah. And I was like, there's no chance Hank Azaria will ever come on the show. And here it is. Here I am. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Joe is the one who suggested it to me. I'm trying to have my voice be out there publicly in recovery, in the recovery world and as a recovery advocate. And, you know, it is a slightly scary thing to do because... First of all, it's extremely private, you know, what you go through. Second of all, like the principles of the program are anonymity and you could make, to put it simply, you're not supposed to go crowing it from the rooftops. And, and the, the best example I was always given about that is what I call the Liza Minnelli example, which is she got sober in AA and, and shouted from the rooftops about how grateful she was back in the 70s. And uh, then I think a month later, she was out. You know, and, and that's the idea is like, well, that was a great advertisement for, for sobriety in AA. But, you know, it, it's not particular to AA, first of all. Recovery and sobriety can take many routes, number one. Number two, um, 
Well, there's so many more ways to share. This is one of them, right? Podcast didn't exist that long, nor did social media. And Joe and I have discussed it many times, actually. I just feel, for me personally, the good outweighs the bad. It's for- funny, because when we started the show, I mean, Chris Chris wound up dying. I, I come up on eight years, and I'm still chugging along, thank God. And we, you know, we started the show almost eight years ago. And my sponsor, when we started, was like, that show is horrible. Also, I talked shit about AA on the show. In oh, the yeah. Beginning. Okay. All right. I think I outed some people in our meeting on the show. Yeah, that's, that's was, against the principles. Was, so the we program. took all those shows down. Yeah. And then he called Dopey some kind of Wayne's World experience right. for him hanging out with me and Chris. You've listened to some of those episodes. I know I have. Yes. They're part of what frightened me to come on. Well, we can talk about it. I Please. Mean, I mean, I went into Al-Anon first. I'm more of an Al-Anon at heart. How did you wind up in Al-Anon? Well, you know, I grew up around addiction. I didn't know it totally. My mom, who passed away about a year and a half ago now, sorry, uh, was like many women of her generation, Valium addict, you know, or dependent, as she insisted on calling it, which made a lot of sense to me looking back. I didn't find out until I was like 42 years old, like 17 years ago. But in, and the reason I found that out, well, so I went in Al-Anon because my, my, my best friend was almost died of the disease 15 times. And so how old are you the first time you go to Al-Anon? The first time I walked in a room, I was probably in my early 30s. I was complaining to a friend of mine who had been sober for years. I was complaining to him about my marriage and my family and my friends. And it wasn't all alcohol and drug related. It was about alcohol and drugs somewhat, but people, places, and things more. And I remember him saying to me, you know, buddy, I'm only going to tell this to you once, but if you feel like going to an Al-Anon meeting, you qualify. So I'm like, okay. Were you sober at that point? No, but I didn't realize I wasn't. And I'm a weird uh, drunk, David, because I'm a true round robiner of addictions. Really, my main home program is that, like, I'm... At rest, my default setting is a major Al-Anon caretaker. Really, ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, is what I most relate to, which they're thinking of changing to Adult Children of Dysfunctional Families because it doesn't have to be alcohol. Open it up, right. Not not even in the least. It doesn't even drugs. It can be anything. Depression, incarceration, violence. That makes a lot abuse. of sense. It could be any old thing that has disrupted your family big time. I feel like in all of recovery, there's something troublesome and difficult about how specific each one gets. Like, I I mean, I don't like to violate traditions, but I got sober in AA and I, I barely drank, but I needed the solution that AA provided me. I was total drug addict. You're much more of a drug addict than, than a drinker. Yeah, but I, I was spiritually ill and I needed a spiritual solution. That's and I thing. always wanted to have like a non-denominational 12-step thing. Right. Where it's just everything. Because it's like basically the solution is the same for everything. Everything. Oh, there's so much I could say to that. Well, the, the reason why I'm a weird case, I yeah, think, tell me, is that I would never really get, I never went too far with any one addiction, but I kind of did them all. I would sort of get on to, I'd realize, oh, I'm kind of drinking too much. That's not good. So I'd switch it out. I, you know, with anything. Could be drugs, but it was more often things like work. Like I said, workaholic myself beyond recognition, which Hollywood really encourages you to do. 
both hours wise and ambition wise. And I think our whole society does, quite frankly. But then there's that, or I would go, ah, I'm retired. So I'd go to the gym like a maniac, you know, for four months. I'm like, oh, it's getting a little much. And then I go back to booze or, or I'd have a Coke phase or I'd have a, I would have been a great Coke addict. I loved it. I just, my body literally couldn't, my nose would have fallen off. In fact, it almost did not that far into it. So I would round robin these addictions, which is what took me a long time to get onto myself. But my main addiction really was cuckoo relationships. Codependence. Absolutely. Let me find someone with very, very interesting problems whether they're addiction problems or alcoholic problems or other kinds. And I will happily, I usually, for the most part, never drank or used when I was in a relationship. That was my drug. That was the, and the thing. The second those relationships ended, I would drink and ingest everything and, and run around like a nut. Because you didn't feel home. You had that space inside of you that you couldn't fill with a relationship, so you filled it with booze or coke. Oh, yeah. Did you have a gambling thing or no? Not really. I mean, I'm a poker player. I still am. I never really, I never fell into that as a problem. That never called to me. So when you first went to Al-Anon, what was appealing about it in general? It wasn't. By the way, I say that, but my when I got sober in AA that first year or two, it was cupcakes and poker for me. And, and po- I, went, I started going a little too far and playing stakes that I shouldn't have played. And so I'm definitely capable video games, man. I went really? nuts. Mario Kart. You should have seen me in a, you should have, uh, there's a, let me tell, uh, later I'll tell you my Mario Kart addiction insanity story. So I, I went to that, a couple of Al-Anon meetings and sort of had real low self-esteem. I was like, oh, I feel bad for my girlfriend that she has to put up with me. Uh, not even onto myself as an alcoholic, just like, geez, because I, I just felt so, I related to the defects and felt like I had all of them. Or I heard stories and felt like, gee, I think I would be the bad guy in that story. Didn't go because it didn't really speak to me. What happened was my marriage from the get-go wasn't going well. The guy actually left the house. The marriage wasn't ending, but I, we were getting separated. And... um as I left the house that day, I'm driving to wherever I was going to stay. And I got a call in the car that a very dear friend was in the hospital dying with pancreatitis uh, at a very young age, dying of alcoholism. So I turned the fucking car around and went to the hospital. And um, me and two friends took turns just staying with him in the, in the room at Cedars for like two, three weeks that went on. He was full-blown DTs and I remember I walked in the room I thought he was dead I you know it was it was bad I mean I remember waking up in the middle of the night in Cedars going I was married and happy like well maybe not all that happy but married anyway in my house a week ago and now I live at Cedars with my friend dying in the corner and um, I remember thinking gee you know if I'm going to go through this I probably should go to an Al-Anon meeting because that's supposed to be what you helps you and I remember literally stag- Cedars had them at Cedar sinai in L.A. Staggering, literally staggering, like shuffling. I was so spent um, over into this meeting. And within 30 seconds of that meeting, and the timing, this is real. I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of, they say, learn the facts about alcoholism. You know, and that's one of the do's. And I was like, you know what? I kind of know what this is. I'm already good. I don't think this is so much about my, watching my buddy die. That's sad, but it it's kind of is what it is. 
in about 30 seconds, I'm like, I think this is more about uh, my marriage. I feel much more relating to how me and my, my wife are having problems. And then 30 seconds after that, I was like, actually, I think it's about my family. Of origin. <laughs> so you were like the perfect candidate. Oh, and then um, 30 seconds after that, genuinely, I was like, oh, you know what? I think this is about me. I think it's about me. And that I was, then I was in, because I actually really did go through all that. And I, I really did get the line, how all those are connected. I didn't realize I was a drunk yet. Well, it's funny, like, like whenever we're in a situation where the relationship is so complex, we look back and be like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? And ultimately we only can do what we did and move forward. And it's like, you didn't have program when the marriage was crumbling. And by the time it was over, you were like, well, yeah, I'm on this path. And you know, I've never been to an Al-Anon meeting, but the thing that I always hear is is to detach with love. Isn't that like the... That is a main yes, which isn't so easy. Right, but it's a beautiful concept. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like all we want to do, because I, I mean, like, obviously, you, you can't have a marriage or, or a relationship that's really intense without having some problems with it. It's impossible. Well, everybody does. But, you know, I worked my early Al-Anon program around trying to see if I, I could, we could save that marriage and be together. And you work the same steps you do in AA. Step one, you know, admitting that you're insane, admitting you're, you're powerless. Unmanageability. It's unmanageable. Yeah. And it's, you know, for AAs, it's my own drinking is, is unmanageable. For Al-Anons, it's somebody I love's drinking is, is unmanageable. Is it somebody, is it that or is it the relationship is unmanageable? Both. Right. Both. Somebody's sobriety could be making you crazy. It's somebody's craziness is making you crazy. Really your, 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 your substance is the relationship and the person. Exactly. When, when do you think in your, in your history, like, were and you- And this was, by the way, we're talking about my ex-wife, but I, this was me in every relationship. This could go for my four other love relationships I had in my life. It was, it, it was, they were different dynamics. In one, I was the drunk, and the other one was the caretaker. Another one, we were both drinking like crazy. Well, that was rare for me. And in, but my, my main flavor was I found either somebody who used or somebody who was very interesting to me for other reasons, like my ex-wife. And I would follow them around and try to change them and fix them. And that was more of an elixir to your like addictness, alcoholism. That was my drug of choice. Right, right, right. So when did you kind of look at yourself and be like, holy shit, I'm, I'm a drunk too? Seven years into Al-Anon. Wow. So, so you're, drink, you're going to Al-Anon and drinking. Oh, yes. Yes. Explain it to me how that works. Well, what happened was, so in the recovery out of that marriage as an Al-Anon, and by the way, I, I would replace, you know, you talk about somebody else's drinking, driving you crazy. Well, I replaced drinking with the word thinking because I, I was trying to, always trying to change every person I was with. I was like trying to change her thinking. I'm like, no, well, she only, she only thought this or understood that or got this. She only did what I wanted to do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, do it the way I think it should be done. And I was forever trying to manipulate and control and change and control and beg and plead and explain and lawyer and examine and this and that to a completely insane and unmanageable degree, as insane as drug addicts get, where it's all about, that's all you see anymore. That's your obsession. That's all you got going. So coming out of that relationship, I would have what I called um days, David, where uh, I called them um days. I would literally sit in a room much like this, stare at a wall. And out loud go, for hours, go, um, uh, uh, 
because I had no idea who I was, what I should do, who I, what I should be, where I should go if I was not reacting to a to woman. your partner. Yes. Is that is there an actoriness in that? Like where you as an actor, as somebody who is always inhabiting other roles and other ideas, do you think that there's something parallel with inhabiting a relationship versus inhabiting a part or am I just reaching? No, you're right. I often think that partly why I was able to round robin these addictions and codependencies, I'm like, I'm such a character actor that I'm comfortable like kind of switching my personas all the time. Or maybe uncomfortable with whatever is actually inside. And yes, this is my and, Jewish Oprah moment. No, you're right. Well, listen, I, I to get into that, I can talk about how I transitioned from Al-Anonism to alcoholism. I want to hear about we'll it. We'll put yeah. a pin in that for a second. I became an actor. I'm a mimic, right? All these voices, yeah. And I, that's, I became an actor because I wanted to be anybody but me. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. When's the first time you acted? Oh God, we're little in camp, school plays. I always, I was, I was kind of a good athlete too. So I always wanted to be out on the ball field, but I always get cast in whatever stupid production was going on because I was good at it. And I'd be, you know, I'd show up in like soccer cleats and knee pads. Like, can we get this over with, you know, the rehearsal today? Um, I enjoyed it some, but. So from ever, when I was little and I didn't, the fact that I could mimic, I was raised by the television. That was part of my weird upbringing. Me too. Yeah. I was totally raised by the television. Yes. Like I lived in front of the television and, and I mean, you know, my dad, I, I like to blame him for my heroin addiction, but it's more that he, they were just, they were into each other, my parents. And I was just at home in front of the TV. Similar story. You know, I was pretty much, I would be given a, a bag of, a, like a half pound bag of M&Ms and place it on TV. Is it any wonder that I became a, a video and food addict? And my grandma gave me a, a, my own TV when I was five and they, they put it in my room. <laughs> I had something like that too. So from age five, I'm yeah, 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 toddling, yeah. literally toddling up to it and turning it on. I would watch Carson every night from when I was five years old. That's why I developed a Carson impression. Did you develop it back then? Not when I was five, but as a teenager, I did. And, I, and all of your friends lived in the TV. I mean, obviously you had a life, but I had such close relationships with every fucking television show that I watched. Oh, like, yeah. I know it encyclopedically. I can listen to theme songs and feel better. Me too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, and also I had the added bonus if I could actually kind of accurately mimic. I could remake the I sound of the... Ability. My mother, when I was not much older than that, five or so, maybe a little bit younger because I don't know if I had my own TV or not. She found me one day kind of banging my head against the television and she asked what I was doing and I said, uh, Bugs Bunny's in trouble. I want to go in there and help him. I was actually trying to crawl into the television set, which ironically ended up kind of doing as an adult, right? And literally Bugs Bunny, like Mel Bugs Bunny was my hero as a child and then when I realized that was Mel Blanc, he became my hero. And, That's incredible. And then I, I literally, and I literally kind of did that. I crawled into the Bugs Bunny episode and and participated. Did you? When did when did voices start coming? Oh, from the earliest age. Always found that I could do it. Thought everybody could do it. Had one of those big stupid tape recorders that back then where you press two buttons at once real hard to yeah, record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would record myself. I was always I was recording from an early age just to crack myself up. And I, I really was actually trying to become a mimic. I would listen, like, does that sound like Bugs Bunny? No, I'd work little. You'd do Bugs. What would you do as a kid? Relatives, mostly. Right. You know. My my father's mother talk like this. <laughs> I love you, honey. I love you because you're my baby's baby. 
was my mama Sarah, we called her, uh, teachers. I did my mother, of course. And uh, was that like a, ja- a proto Jasper voice? The this mother. voice? No, the first one. That, this the old Jewish yeah, man. Yeah, it's a little Jasper. Yeah, that's my grandmother. Oh, it's it's a, a, were you Abe too? No, you weren't. No, that's, that's Dan a little, Castellano. That's a little bit. Little. I'm the old Jewish man, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah, yeah. guy at, at uh, home with Abe. Yes. Um, that's a, a variation of my grandma. I did my Spanish teacher, Senor Porto, and, you know, found uses for these things. And a lot of celebrity impressions too. So I wanted to be everybody but myself, which is why I started doing these things. It's, it's and, uh, you're just fortunate because most alcoholics have no, don't have the talent that you had, so you could actually give up yourself. I could kind and, of do it. Exactly. Well, well, I remember going, my sister Stephanie's 12 years older than I was. By the time I was 15, that fucked me up because I, would, I could fit in. I was like Zelig. I was like a chameleon. So with the tough kids, I talk like this. And, I, and as far as they knew, this is what I sound like. This is who I was. And... With the athletes, I sounded a different way. And with the nerds, you know, with the burnouts, I sounded a totally different way. And I did all these things. And I was like, I remember freaking myself out and saying, well, I don't, I honestly don't know who I am. I don't know which is the real me. And I remember her having a long talk with me saying, you know, that's actually going to be your greatest strength that you can actually kind of be all these people. And she turned out to be right. But that's what the point is. I would really do that. It was really who I was. And I think it is partly why I would switch addiction so easily is because I found it easy to sort of be one person or another. It's funny because like as some, I was a, you know, a horrible IV heroin addict and I didn't, and I switched between like weed was my first thing and I lived for, for weed and pills and, but my first thing was my friends. I was totally, I went to school on the Upper East Side. I got into a school when I was four I stayed there till I was 17 and I was totally codependent on them. And when I left, you know, to go to college, I felt alone. And that's when my alcoholism and drug addiction kicked in immediately because I didn't know what to do without them. Right. You know what I'm saying? And you seem like you would get into a group and you'd feel okay because you were accepted and from thing to thing. And it never even became a substance. It just became where can you find acceptance and then you don't have to worry that you don't know who you are or, or don't want to deal with yourself. Yeah, I was very other, absolutely very other directed. People could be my drug, absolutely. And because you're, you you identify alanonically more than drug addicted or alcoholically, I guess you did wind up identifying alcoholically. Well, what happened, getting back to that, is so I'm coming out of that and realizing I'm this person, this chameleon, let me attach to you so I can avoid myself person. And uh, realized I had to recover out of that quite literally. Um, and that bottom, by the way, was harder than my A bottom. I've had a few bottoms, an A bottom, a food bottom. Well, let's talk bottoms. I love this kind of stuff. Well, yeah. The Alanonic bottom was the end of your first marriage. Yeah. I mean, it was familiar territory. I'd had four or five other relationships that were very similar. But that one was the most heartbreaking to me. And that one was like, I had a great shrink, Phil Stutz, the Jonah Hill just did a documentary yeah, about it. Yeah, you worked with him. Yeah, for years. How was that? It was amazing. Yeah, Phil does my Phil impression. He kind of sounds like young Mickey Rourke. I did a whole Mark Maron episode talking about Phil. Nice. And he had Phil on afterwards. Phil was hilarious and great. And um, The shadow self. Yes. Did he of, talk about that when you were with him? Oh, yeah, a lot of the young Can you break stuff. it down for me? The shadow self? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's hard to understand, but essentially... 
the shadow is that part of yourself you just don't want to deal with that's been suppressed you know so for in my case in the context of what we're talking about right who the real me was i had no idea i'm running around trying to fit in with everybody but that is a very powerful part of your psyche that is undeveloped but it's still in there and starts to want to come out you know and he will let you know he exists in pleasant and unpleasant ways you know and he holds all the juice really I mean, it's the part of yourself that you fear that is ugly, that is awful, which you're running from. What you, the, the deep want. Who you're afraid you, you are. It's right. actually who you really are and it's right. wonderful, but it shows up as who you're quite afraid that you are. And his work in that movie was to let Jonah Hill know that that part of him wasn't disgusting. Exactly. And did he do that for you? Oh, yeah. That's so cool. In a lot of ways. I mean, and Phil, at the time, he was big on... You saw him here? I saw him in L.A. Okay. I was living in L.A. at the time. That relationship ended. He's like, all right, listen. He called me schmuck. I listen, schmuck, listen. <laughs> yes. Um, what are you going to do now? Is you going to grieve? He's grieving like somebody died. He said, and grieving is a physical process. It takes nine to 12 months. You can't rush it. He said, and um, you have to go through it. You have to feel it, you know. We say in programming, you gotta feel it to heal it, but he was referring to this. He said, here's the thing, you gotta stay away from her because she's kind of your drug. So you go through five months, say, and you're feeling a little better, and you're like, yeah, let me call her, see how she's doing. Now you hit the reset button. Now it's nine months, even if it's a 10 minute conversation. Now it's nine to 12 months from that point. That was bad news. So staying away, from because that's your drug i literally equated it like my call i go through this with many sponsees and i have since and i've lived it that's like a hit of heroin or a bump of coke or a a shot of whiskey you just want to hear the voice and know they still love you or even have any kind of negative any drama anything any heat anything you just want to know they exist and and they're thinking of you in some way it's like a drug because it means that you exist because you feel without it that you don't exist or we're, I don't know. All I know is, right, we never talk about this. So go as deep as you can on this because I think it's really interesting. The same way you feel when you're first kicking heroin or booze, it's you feel that way. Like rolling around on the fucking ground. Alone. Ex- al- excruciating. And what's worse than that awful feeling of physical pain, heartache, and anxiety, and sadness, and anger all rolled into one, grieving, essentially is the fear that it's never gonna end. It's like, you know, what what Phil and my sponsor convinced me of is, no, this nine to 12 months is gonna suck, but you'll come out the other end and you'll be whole, you know, and you'll be all right. But that wound has to be drained, you know, it like, and it takes a while. And so you gotta stay with it. And, you know, I remember Phil saying, schmuck, you just can't fucking abandon yourself. You can't abandon yourself. That's the phrase he used. So what is it? To abandon yourself is to give up on yourself for another person. Or another substance or another liquid or whatever it is that you feel is going to take away that pain. So what is not abandoning your... Like, what's a healthy way to deal with it? 
in this case, it was very one day at a time. I mean, look, I got sober in AA one day at a time, and that was no joke. And I, by the time, I mean, I wasn't a world-class drunk. I didn't have to go to rehab, but I was good enough. I appreciate you putting yourself down as not a good enough drunk. I always say it. I'm like, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm like a utility infielding 220 hitting <laughs> right, drunk. Right, 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 you know what right. I mean? Who would who comes off the bench? But I'm a fucking world class Al-Anon right. codependent. Right. You know, I'm an all star. Right. And it, what it looks like is you, you go to meetings, you do a ninety and ninety, you, you, like you're like you're staying off a drug. You, you call your fucking spot every, every two three days. I would work up some reason why I should call my ex and go back. Right. M- meaning why I should drink. And they would, and he'd say, "No, Schmuck, remember we we talked about this. You tried it, actually didn't work." I'm like, "Right, right. Thank you, thank you." Well, I'd call my sponsor, Roger, and say, Roger, but didn't I do this and that? And shouldn't I really go back and do it differently? He's like, no, sir. No, you should not. This is you just trying to justify using. Really. I had exactly the same experience. When I, when I first got sober, my, the, I mean, she's not my wife. She's my partner. We had a kid, and she kicked me out because I was using. And I spent five years where she was the drug. All right. I wanted was the connection and I didn't know what to do with myself. You know what I mean? And, and, and you didn't address this in Al-Anon or anything? Or I never you? went to Al-Anon. Ultimately, well, I How did you get through that? I, miserably, on drugs, crazy. It wasn't until I had almost gotten back together with her because we had a four-year-old girl at the time. And I had almost gotten together with her. And her and I went on a trip to, with, with our daughter to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. And she's not an addict or an alcoholic, but she... You know, she drinks and she would take little bits of Xanax to help her sleep. Okay. I stole the Xanax. <laughs> the first night we're of trying course you did. Yeah, to reconcile. You get thrown out of the drunk union if you didn't. She freaks out and tells me I've lost custody. So what I decided to do was uh, I went crazy and I started writing her letters because I, I had lost custody in the first place, and I had to get a year sober to get cust- to get visitation back. Oh, okay. And and at this point, I was See, that's so a bad life choice. I was so close to getting back together, and I lost it again. I went insane, and I had remember he- I remember hearing in in treatment the obsession to use being lifted in AA, and I don't remember hearing that in NA, even though I'm sure it was. So I decided to go to AA. And then I just said, I'm just doing this. When I heard rarely- So you addressed your substance addiction in AA? I addressed my, and my codependency. Right. I'd, when I heard rarely have we seen a person fail, for, thoroughly follow this method, I was like, I'm in. I fucked, I was 41. I'm in. I fucked up hopefully half of my life. Let's see what 41 years the other way can look. And as soon as I, and I told her, I was like, I need us to be done. I need to like, give up on this and I need to do my recovery. And then like, she wanted to get back together with me like right away. And now we have another kid and I'm not codependent in the same way. Are you still with her now? Yeah. Oh, okay. We got back together and we had a second daughter, but my, I was in that for five years of using, not using whatever in that total feeling of, I can't live without hearing her voice, knowing what she's doing. I am nothing. If I don't know, like I, I, I can totally relate. So, you know, from applying, the 12 steps in these tools to realizing somebody's also becoming your drug or your obsession with them is just as much of your addiction as, as anything else. Well, that's why I think like to have it be one substance, because I think 12 steps, I think a spiritual approach can work with any malady. If you practice those principles, you can get through 
obsession about work or food or gambling or fucking hating yourself or whatever. Yeah, hundred percent. That is a lot of what I have. Just a lot of my message. I look at in the AA Big Book, right? They say the disease of alcoholism isn't so much the drinking. We do that as an attempt at a solution. We're trying to feel better. We're literally we're medicating and, our and brokenness. It, yes, and it works for a while. It works. We wouldn't do it. It's certainly that you know first drink I took when I was fourteen. It felt fantastic and continued to for a long time. And I would so go on and off that for me, it took a long time to get onto it. But, you know, I remember when I actually really did get sober in AA or wherever I got sober. The point is I got sober for real when I was 42 years old. Right about the same time as I did. Yes. I remember I went to some fancy party at my agency and where a lot of celebs were, in a, but in, an, in a, kind of a, an intimate and it was the kind of thing that I was in Hollywood for years. I was quite used to. It was like a five o'clock wine and cheese kind of thing. And I was freaking out. What does it look like? Very newly sober. I just was so nervous yeah. and I could barely breathe. Now, what was weird was I didn't particularly have the urge to have a glass of wine at this thing. It wasn't so much that. I, that was too early for me to drink usually. I usually wouldn't hit it till later anyway. But I kept saying to myself at this thing, God, I feel like I'm 15 years old. I feel like I'm 15 years old. I had it was I was so nervous I had to go to the bathroom and like splash water on my face. And I kept saying, like, I feel like I'm 15. I'm like, what's with the and then I asked myself, like, what's with the 15 years old thing? Then I realized this is the kind of realization you have when you work a program. I'm like, fuck, that's when I started drinking. I would literally trans, I would, you know, we we feel, right? Like you're you're sort of emotionally arrested uh, wherever you started picking up. Like you kind of, all right, well, I'm good. Now I'm, I'm going I'm to stop there because this is too much for me. And I'm going to, instead of feeling things anymore and progressing, I'm going to drink and, and use instead. And that was certainly true of me. And it was so weird because there I was at an event where I would have normally felt fine, not even drunk at. But just you could anesthetize your, your anxiety with knowing that you could have a drink. That was it. That was more the drug for me Safety. than even the drink. I mean, I going wrong. The drinking was a lot of it. But I realized that I was a strange drunk that way, that knowing, you know, the martini or three were coming at the end of the day was even more better than the martini itself. Because there were plenty of days I was either too tired, like especially like something upset me at work on a set. And I had this kind of detachment out of a bottle like, and I didn't, was never a conscious thought, but I was like, well, how, I'm going to be drunk and loose by 11 o'clock tonight anyway. How big a deal is this really? And then sometimes the martini wouldn't even come at the end of the day. It was just an assurance that everything would be okay without you needing to be world-class in the bottle fucked. Exactly. And when that got taken away, then I, I was not it's so scary. detached then you're at all three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Then all of a sudden I'm real reactive. I didn't. I was angry about, you know, I play poker. I never got, if you ask me if I was angry at the card table, never, never once. I love playing cards and enjoyed the camaraderie and love playing and everything about poker I love. Okay. I got sober and I can't tell you the rages I flew into at, at my dear friends to the point where I took one of them said a thing to me. I, ironically, I picked up his vodka and tossed it on him. Wow. Uh, that's how angry I was like, fuck. I lost some friends because of that. To your anger, like weird anger when yeah, you first got sober. Yeah, I couldn't believe. 
Couldn't believe all that anger. Now that's shadow stuff that I was drinking drinking to avoid. Well, you were drinking to medicate. Absolutely. I, I think I have so many questions. My first question I think is like, because when you're first doing Al-Anon, because sober isn't abstinent, right? Sober is a way of dealing with the world. I mean, I don't even know what the definition, but a, a way to deal with the world where you're not reactive, where you're accepting and cool. That's sober. What, what's a good definition of sober? I would call that what we say, what my first sponsor called emotionally sober. Fine, right. But emotionally sober like covers the gamut. Not drinking is dry. Or yeah. abstinent, right. Yes. Where if you're not working a program, if you're not processing what, what I was getting at, what, what Bill W. calls the disease of alcoholism is restless, irritable discontent. That's really what we suffer from. Now, we drink to try to alleviate that. But that's really if and the I always I heard early on, you know, you want to find out why you drink, stop drinking. Much like I experienced at the card table. Like, fuck, that was in there. As soon as I started getting angry at the card table for years and years, I grab a vodka. I didn't necessarily get drunk. But uh, you medicated your anger. But there was there was there was a thing there. So yeah. what I want to know is in Al Anon, like you're you're starting to get emotionally sober, but you're still drinking. So talk about the progression from Al Anon to uh, AA and from codependency to alcoholism. Yes, like, yes, I can, David. Thank you. Yes, I can. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yes. Uh, so I have these um days. Yes. Where, what do I do? Right. I didn't know if I was not reacting to a woman that I was obsessed with and in love with. I had absolutely no idea. Literally, what, like, what to do? Like, do I eat? Do I brush my teeth? Do I see a movie? Do I? So in asking myself, so that was a lot of my alanonic disease was, I don't know what I want to do. And I'd have to start making lists. Like, what do I like? I, I like the Mets. I like poker. I hadn't played poker in ages. I like documentary films. I like getting in shape. I like, and I, okay, I think I should probably go do those things, which I started to do. Now, I'm still miserable, and I would lose heart in doing them because I just would be so grieving what I was going on. that, And I, I didn't like being alone either. If you asked me, was I afraid to be alone, I would say no, but then I realized, oh, I'm quite terrified of it actually, which is why I would stay in relationships that were not good. And I'm not blaming her or any other person. I was half of that equation, but I was afraid to leave on a, such a deep level, I couldn't even admit it to myself. So one of the things I realized I like to do is, you know, I kind of like to drink, mm -hmm. I enjoy it. And um, I kind of woke up out of that marriage, uh, rich and famous enough, to have a good time that way. And I was like, oh, and I, you know, at first it was healthy. What, what year was that that the marriage ended? It was like right around 2000. So yeah, you were incredibly successful. You had been in a, a bunch of huge movies. The Simpsons destroyed the universe. Like you were in Heat, Birdcage. 36 like, years, yeah, all that had happened. Yeah, incredible I, I, I was career. working a lot as an actor and it achieved a certain level of fame and a certain amount of money, although the, we really kind of broke the bank at The Simpsons a bit after that. But, but still, enough to be... You were a Simpsons voice who actually was a really successful screen actor. Yes. So, I mean, you had all the trappings of fame and fortune. Exactly. Uh, enough to... I'm with you. You know what I mean? I just want to paint the picture enough for the dopey nation. Well, how I literally discovered... Because, I, again, I rarely, if ever, drank when I, when I was in that marriage. And I remember towards the end of it, I was at the, the Aspen Comedy Festival with The Simpsons. It was one of the, and, and we were really, we were almost done. In one of my uh, um days, I'm like, oh, my, my friend likes, for, one of the friends who helped me with the other friend who was in Cedar sinai 
he loves frisbee golf. I'm like, well, all right, frisbee golf, let's go play, which we did a lot. And uh, we went to the Aspen Comedy Festival together and did a Simpsons reading. And I was in the bar one night, really got loose in that bar for the first time in ages. And I, I couldn't believe how many people came up to me because kind of all I it's knew like was- I have arrived moment. Well, not so much like, oh, I'm famous or anything, but like, man, fame means everybody, including uh, uh, women I'm attracted to, will come up to you and 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 be excited to meet you and all that that implies sounds incredible and yeah because i was never good at that in a bar i was never like mr smooth mr one-liner mr i mean i was i did okay but i never was you know out there gregariously doing that. no i never did particularly well that way and all of a sudden i didn't have to it would it, it, you know people come up to me so i was like wow that's something and so that they were connected, the, the, the drinking and the, the lure of women were enmeshed for me, like a speedball, like two at once. Like I, I couldn't separate. Well, it was crazy two. validation. You got to feel good. And then somebody told you you were good and exactly. they liked you. It's the best. And you know, your self-esteem isn't the greatest coming out of a marriage like that, or, or not to blame the marriage. My whole life did not tee me up for fantastic self-esteem. <laughs> right. So yeah it felt really good and at first it was kind of good there was a lot of good about it i was like because my sponsor at the time had me work what he called the list he's like you got it the project is called fixing your picker he's like you're picking the wrong relationships who are no good so we so you, we made a list of all the qualities you want from someone and then he turned the tables on me the jerk and said now this list you have to be everything on that list he was like opposites don't attract like attracts like so if you're not everything on that list, then you're not going to have that person. And that was like two year project, especially the being tolerate being alone thing, tolerate uncertainty and tradition seven self-supporting by our own means. He's, he was always like that goes emotionally too, not just for two bucks in a meeting. That's interesting. Yeah. I never heard that. That's yeah. Yeah. No, that's actually. a real yeah. Alan guru thing. And that took like two years. I would have to take myself on dates and you know, be by myself. And I did a lot of that, had a lot of recovery with that. And, and even in, you know, one night stands or casual or coffees or six months relationships, or I would work this list. Like, does she check out? Is she someone I really would take seriously or not? If not, why not? And some of it you don't know. And you kind of see like, I wonder if that's a deal breaker for me. Some of it is, some of it isn't. And so it was good. I was learning to sort of be on my own. I needed booze to do it which became a problem eventually. Well, being single without drinking is like- It was hard. Fucking difficult. Well, I, I wouldn't know for the, about seven years. So then it all, I got good at all that, and then it got away from me. You know, I'm realizing I can't shut this off. I can't stop having these uh, either one night or six week relationships that are very alcohol fueled on both ends. Did you find when you're working an Al-Anon program and drinking so much that you were like, holy shit, like, aren't I becoming this thing? Like, does that surface? Like, when, do, how does it surface? Honestly, it never hit me like that. Because I still know plenty of folks in Al-Anon who drink, in my opinion, some of them maybe alcoholically. But for the most part, you know, David, I was always such a high-functioning drunk that that made it hide in plain sight, too. You know, I never got onto myself that way because I never bumped into horrible consequences, you know. So I'm realizing this is getting away from me. I'm starting to get onto myself. And I did the thing that a lot of drunks do, which is the bargain thing. All right, all right, look, 
I, I can have a couple of drinks. I'm not going to get drunk or, or just on the weekends or just this booze or just, oh, I'm not going to have martinis. I'm going to stick to whatever the hell I did. The bargaining. Yes. That went on for like a year or two. And finally I got down to a weekend where I was like, oh, I was just cut to me, blasted out of my brains in Vegas. And some distant part of my brain went, enjoy this one, my friend, because it's AA for you Monday morning. You, you smelled AA in the background. Good. Well, I had made a deal with myself. And I think it was out loud to some other people too. Like if I do that again, I'm going. And I, and I did. In that run, was there, was there drugs at all? Or just here and there? Sometimes. Never defining. Never defining. No, uh, no, no. There was the occasional Coke, but I'd feel so awful. Like I didn't do that again for like another year, you know. But no, not too much drugs. And there was, what was going on too was I was starting to realize there were certain women that I knew to stay away from uh, that I was able to. But like in the sober light of day, I had no problem staying away from them. But, and I'm not exaggerating when I say a sip of wine and I was dialing them up and I was kind of more afraid of where that stupid alcohol fueled fishing trip would lead me right. in a relationship than of the booze itself. Well, it went hand in hand. And to the point where when I got sober, I was like, I think I have to cut out the women thing too. I think I really do. But a lot of people told me like, well, that's a lot to take on at once. It's actually not even recommended, like pick one, you know, and do that. It's like getting sober and stopping smoking or something. Exactly. It's like too much at once. And so I took, I, I thought of that, but I was like, you know, they're so intertwined for me. I don't think I, I, I can, I did do it. When me and my partner, my daughter's mother, my, my two daughter's mothers, I call her my wife all the time, but we never got married. Uh, when we broke up and I was dating, like I was serial dating. I could relate to a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do it without alcohol. That's, I would never have been to able to that. do it for a second. I, I realized quickly that without booze, I don't do have it? the heart or the stomach or the mind for this at all. I can't do it. It's not fun unless you're altered. Yeah. Yes. It's too far. One needed the other needed the other. You know, in AA, they tell you don't get in a relationship your first year anyway. So that I wasn't in one. But I included my the way I was running around like that in that. So after that that weekend in Vegas and you're like, I'm going to go to a meeting on Monday, you actually did. Oh, I did. And was it eye opening? Very. I mean, the same buddy who was dying at Cedars survived and he brought me to my first uh, AA meeting and his sponsor sat with me. The two of them kind of took me back to his place. I remember walking into the meeting in Brentwood big meeting like in a gymnasium like 400 speaker meeting double speaker meeting two speakers i mean there were like hundreds of people in there and i was just looking and i'd been through Al-Anon. i was just like I'm, the look on my face must have been something and my friend just looked at me and went it's something isn't it god's a bunch of drunks all together in a room you know and that always stayed with me because i was just like man i don't want to climb another mountain like this i don't want to like have to be a beginner and a newcomer and start this and step one and here we go because i still as all drunks are right i still was like i'm not totally sure i am sure I'm totally sure so i sat with my buddy and his sponsor he goes you're a funny one he said you because i am really i was really now i was in tremendously good shape there was no problem ridiculously successful probably the most successful career-wise person that they ever dealt with well there was no inciting incident really except my saying no i did that in in i mean we've heard of high bottom drunks there are plenty out there but you knew 
I mean, you were done. It's like that's the greatest thing about self-diagnosing. You knew, and you were you also you also got something so great out of Al-Anon. You were like, fuck, this really helped me out. And here I am doing this shit, which is also kind of against Al-Anon. It is. So but that honestly, that didn't really enter into it to me. You know, I remember he said, remember where he phrased it goes, Well, I'm not sure if you be or if you don't be. I think that's the way he, he said, but you know, because he was almost a little snobby about it. He was like, hmm, I'm not sure we'd all say you were or not. Because my story is so kind of lame in a way by, by, by drunk-a-log standards. But he said, you know, what I've come to respect is you can't measure people's misery level. Why should you? You know, like who knows? Like what? Like a, a little pinch to you might be so excruciating. To me, it's nothing. But who knows what? And what he said that stayed with me, which was true, is because you know what I think? I think the highly recovered Al-Anon in you has early diagnosed the budding alcoholic in you. And that was true. Because I, I, this I knew. I was like, well, I know how this shit goes. I could wait a year till I have a DUI or two or I get thrown in jail or I get fired or I There's have so a many bar things. fight that gets right. me on TMZ or whatever the heck it is. Or I say something ridiculous. But do I really need to test that? I didn't. I'd seen enough. I also think that you were the kind of person that really benefited from program and you were like, and it felt good. Now here's a weird thought that I'm having right now. Yes. It's like when I'm in program, like, and, and like I told you, I was very codependent on my friends as, as a kid. Yeah. And I, and I am probably totally codependent with my partner and was, and maybe with my children, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, now we're going to get into ACA stuff, but okay. When, when we got, when I got into, 12 step, I was so excited to be a member of a fellowship and have yeah. these close friends. Does codependency play a part when you first arrive in, in AA? No, because I really had a lot of recovery by that. You know, that's an interesting thing. So in Al-Anon, another, uh, the simple way to put it is what I learned primarily was self-care. The way to put myself first in a good way, mm. you know, selfishness versus self-care. And, you know, I remember thinking with, when I was working the steps with my sponsor, besides working the fixture picker and the list thing, we're getting to step nine. I was all nervous. I'm like, oh, boy, I'm going to owe, you know, people amends. I don't want to say I'm sorry to. He's like, you're oversimplifying this. And he knew it was coming. And I, I, I really feared like having to go humble myself to my ex-wife and some other people say, I'm sorry. I, when, when I made that step eight list of people I had harmed, at the top of that list was me. Right. Was how many times I'd shortchanged myself, beat myself up, didn't advocate for myself, didn't speak up, and worse. And disregarded yourself. Abandoned. Abandoned myself. Schmuck, don't abandon yourself. So that amends to myself, those amends to myself became really the substance, that self-care substance of my program. You also asked how to get through that year of grieving. It was that stuff. What I tell sponsees is, the stuff that you do to get over that heartache, that grieving, becomes what I call the substance of your recovery. Everything you do that isn't calling the ex or picking up the drug or taking the drink or doing the fucked up thing that you know is self-destructive becomes, so for me it was frisbee golf and poker and Mets games, documentary films and walks and running and lifting, working in a healthy way, not obsessively. My father claims he invented frisbee golf. I just need to say that. <laughs> He didn't. Well, hats off to him. Then. Yeah, he didn't. 
uh, there, we, we do Zoom meetings every once in a while and somebody said something that's kind of totally antithetical to what you're saying or, where they were like, and this is how I did it. They were talking about the three M's to early recovery, which was meetings, movies, and masturbation. And uh, No, I, I can see that. Yeah, for me, that was like the total beginning. Like I didn't have like really great habits. I cross-addicted into all those things. Cupcakes, you know, meetings, movies, masturbation for sure. You know, I said like when I quit booze, I kept saying, wow, I feel like I'm 15. I realized I felt the same way, you know, William Goldman famously called uh, Hollywood high school with money. Right. Right. And I felt, I realized, oh my God, I, this is how I felt when I was 15 at, at the middle school or, or, or high school party where I, I couldn't fit in. And, and that first sip, right? It's like, oh, wait, this is, uh, this, this works. It's a great lubricant. Exactly. And when I needed to calm down with the masturbating and the porn, and I did, I had this weird reaction because I had worked really hard. Part of my recovery became more health around work. I was so self-critical of my own work to almost a crippling degree. I was miserable all day on set. I couldn't watch myself and things. And I had to work a lot of recovery around that, which was an unexpected byproduct of, of, of recovery, especially in Al-Anon and AA too. So when I gave up the porn and the masturbation, I had this relapse of being uh, so self-conscious at work and caring so much what other people thought of me again. And I was like, what is that? I had to really work a program around. I'm like, I don't, why am I back with this? Because it had been years since I got over that. And then it hit me, David. I started doing that when I was, as most boys do around 12, right? 12, 13, you start doing that. All I cared about then was what people thought of me. Do I fit in? Am I cool? Do you like me? And so stopping that drug of, of masturbation and porn became, that came, you know, right up in my face. That weird, anxious, I don't know who I am and you probably don't want to know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to find out why you drank, stop drinking. You want to find out why, why you jerked it, stop jerking it. And, and that's what came up. It, These are the amazing gifts of recovery that I have found along the way. Yeah. Realizing that what was buried underneath my drinking, what was buried underneath, you know, and I'll addict to anything, porn, masturbation, working out, work. It's crazy because when I'm listening to you, I, I'm thinking about when I was a kid. Like when I drank as a kid, I got sick. Like I couldn't drink. Right. Like it, affect, it wasn't like I break out in handcuffs. It's like I projectile vomit. It's a mess. I can't do it. So That's I did, how I was with Coke, even though I loved it. I couldn't, I couldn't drink. And what I would do when I was a kid, because I'd feel exactly – it's funny that this, this – thought is coming to my head because I felt exactly the way you're describing it. I would go into depression for attention. Like I would, like as a kid. You like you leaned into the depression? Yeah, like at a party or something because I didn't know how to deal with the party. I would be like, I'd, I'd alienate so I'd get attention. It was weird. Negative Just, attention yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Or, you, that's victim shit. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's funny because I never, I don't think about that very often. I don't talk about that very well, often. Well, victim thinking and victim acting out is a huge part of Al-Anonism. How, explain that. Well, poor me, you know. Right. I just, I, I, I qualified this morning at an Al-Anon meeting and I was talking about a lot in my family of origin. We would make this noise. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. No word. It's like a three-year-old noise. And I remember I, early in recovery. This needy kind of. Yeah. This the noise. poor me, like, help me. I can't even give words to it. I'm so, you know, and. I remember I was in a crowded elevator once. I needed to get off and nobody was moving. 
And I, I involuntarily let out a, eh. Right. And a guy turned around and looked at me and said, do you need to get off the elevator? I was like, yeah. And he went, not unkindly went, okay, just say so. And I got off the elevator. And I was like, man, that is a metaphor for my whole life. That whole, I choose to make that noise. Or like you said, just be, be the depresso at the party or someone notice how much I'm right, suffering. Right, right. I you need, know? I need you to notice me. And then maybe because maybe I'm deep because I'm not happy. Right. You know, maybe I have some depth because I, I can't fit in. And it's, it's like, I would be so anxious though, that I would seek comfort. Like, I, I, I guess I was so anxious that I wanted comfort and I'd be like, comfort me because I'm depressed, even though yeah. I was just terrified, you know? Yes. I mean, whatever it's victimy. It's like, Oh, you know, I'm, it's, it's kind of martyry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. we it's have a bullshit. cute sl yeah. slogan in Alan on, uh, get off the cross. We need the wood. All right. And it's like, instead of advocating for yourself or speaking up or dealing with how you feel, it's, uh, and hope somebody notices and then they'll, uh, take care of me. Cause I can't, cause I can't which take is, care of myself, which is, which is what I realized in Alan on recovery was the actual selfishness of all that selflessness was let me fix you so that you can take care of me. Cause I need somebody else to validate me. If you're not all right, then I'm lost. And if I'm fixing you, I must be great. So you need to take care of me. Exactly. So you'll return the favor, which often people don't. I call that the contract in the messy room. There's this messy room, like a hoarder room that's in your house, like that is just junk and disgusting and horrible. You don't want to go in there. It's all your shadow stuff. That's your shadow in there. So all the stuff you don't do with your anger, your fear, and all the stuff we're talking about, like why you drink and why you use and why you jerk, why you anything, right? So the contract is, I, I don't want to go in there. Let me follow you around and take care of you. We'll do, it'll all be your way. And I'll get to avoid my messy room and we'll deal with your messy room. And then I'm great because I'm thinking of you right. and not me. Yes. The problem with that is it builds tremendous resentment in me because sometimes, like about twice a month, you want it to be about you. It's like, you. what about me? Exactly. Like, even if it's as simple as, can I pick the restaurant tonight? Or can we get to watch the movie I want to watch or deeper things? And the person's like, no. And so you freak out. Like, what do you mean? I do this for you and right, that for right. you. And then it all comes out. And you don't, and it, that would be a bad contract if it were spoken, but implicit, like an unconscious, it's just a sicko thing. And then on and on, then you turn into this ogre because you're very upset. Because you've done inequity. all those things for yeah. yourself when you claim like it was for the person in the exactly. first place. It actually was really selfish. It was like, I, there was a big price tag on it. You know, you got to make me okay. This is the most feeling episode of Dopey I think we've ever had. And I feel very raw. Well, that's Alan. Alan owns people, places and things and, and, and your reaction to them. And I really believe I'm doing you a much better favor by taking care of myself and then giving to you from the excess. Let me take care. You know, we, the metaphor we use is right. Oxygen of your own mouth first before you can help anybody else, including your own kids. Able to. No, you'll be passed down on the floor. So. Then in AA, I really discovered service. I discovered like, oh, this is actually not, yes, it's about helping the newcomer help him count days and get sober, which I can do from my experience, strength and hope when I was there. But it's also about, well, how you feeling? How you doing in all our affairs, right? We say not just not drinking and being a maniac, but you know, are you okay at work? Are you okay out in the world? Are you, how are you? I do feel all right. I know you're not using, which is great, 
but how does that feel? How is it affecting you? Are you more angry? Are you more upset? Are you more sensitive? Let's address all that. People, places, and things. I imagine, though, that that, it seems very, it would be triggering to the Al-Anon in you. Because, like, I, I was taught to do service if I have a problem do service so you don't have to think about yourself. Right. But that's kind of like what the Al-Anon thing in the first place was. Yes. Yeah, so I think, here's my theory. Because I had so much Al-Anon, I was a black belt Al-Anon right, by right, then. Right, right, I knew where that line was. Right. So you I had could, the boundary. I, 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 being of service was a joy to me because I, I actually couldn't figure out how to do that. I got so good at serving myself. I'm like, well, shouldn't this... Should I take this act on the road? And it was through AA that I learned to do that in a much more healthy way. Like, but I was very aware of the boundaries. You know, there's a fine line between helping and enabling, right? So knowing where that is, is important. You know, the ultimate example is the parents with the kid who's using, and there comes that moment where you got to say, you know, I always think of Paulie from Goodfellas, you know, when he hands the money to Real Otis, says, and now I got to turn my back on now you. Now I got to turn, can you do that yeah. voice? Now I got to turn my back on you. <laughs> there you go. And uh, tough luck. It's hard to do with yeah. It's hard to do with anybody you love, let alone your kid, right? But you you hit a point where it's like you know what we say, right? In the rooms, one more person helped me, I would have been dead, right? And I didn't have that particular journey, but I know many who did, and it's really hard. I really do believe the second one becomes sober, you qualify, you stop using, you qualify for the Al-Anon program, because how else? I only relate to the world addictively. Sure, drugs and alcohol that way, but also people, places, and things. And then I honestly think, so if, if AA is, you know, college and Al-Anon's the graduate program, I believe ACA is the master, is the PhD. And Heroin Anonymous is the post-doctorate diploma? I, I don't, that I wouldn't know from. <laughs> I'm uh, just joking. That, that's, I think that's studying abroad. Well, Heroin Anonymous is, that's, a, you should, you should check it out just as a tourist. I can't even imagine. It's a trip. I can't even imagine. It's a trip. I never went to to heroin anonymous until i was sober for a while yeah it's a fucking trip did you was that you was you were you heroin guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah and yeah, did yeah. it did heroin anonymous speak to you or no? no no i mean i i just needed spirituality right you know what i'm saying like narcotics anonymous wasn't really good for me either it was just too distracting it was like a little too like tactile for me that's interesting right but you found we should talk about spirituality uh, but i remember the buddy who said to me you know buddy i'm gonna tell you this once if you want to go to Alameda, you qualify. He got sober and he said, you know, really, after about a year, it's not about drinking or not drinking anymore. It's just what he said it was just delivery system to have God in your life. 100%. And yeah. like when, and I can make fun of, I, I, I think it's funny to make fun of Heroin Anonymous on Dopey. It's, it's me making a joke. Like you can get a great meeting in any fellowship and a shit meeting in any fellowship. Yeah. If you, I mean, like, were you, did you smoke a bunch of weed or no? I did, especially as a youth. Did you ever go to Marijuana Anonymous? Never did. No. Funniest thing. That's a fucking funny meeting. No one's no one got time. finish a share. No one's got time. Everyone's got like a day. It's like somebody took me to an MA meeting on on 11th Street, and it was like it was like such a joy because I didn't think I, I was I, I in a way I was so fucked up, but to be there it made me feel less fucked up. It was it was a joy. I mean, honestly, I I feel that way. I go to AA meetings. Well, I can't relate. I can't relate. I, first of all, I have no idea what it's like anymore to, to have a physical urge to drink or even an emotional urge to it. I mean, maybe once a year, the thought will occur to me kind of casually. Like, I, and it hits me in a weird way. Like, oh, it would be, for some reason, decks get me in the summer. Like, be nice to sit on that deck and have a beer. 
And then I go, what's that? What's that thought? And always, of course, it's like, oh, I'm really nervous about this job coming up. That's what that is. Or I got this thing hanging over me that's making me uncomfortable that I'm not really looking at. I feel like I have some kind of like fantasy aspect of it. Like I look at, I, I, for me, it's weed on my porch. How long sober are you? Like eight years. Do you ever like have a drink urge anymore? I never, but I never was or a heroin drinker. urge. Heroin is, uh, I, I loved how heroin made me feel, but the last, I did heroin, pro- last time I did heroin was probably 10 years ago. I hadn't done it for a year and I did it and it fucked me up. So it's like, you have to really like get accustomed to it. It would kill me, you know, it would literally kill me. But even if I did a tiny bit, I would get sick. Oh, okay. You know, I would get nauseous. I, I had cravings for weed here and there, benzos like Xanax, Clonopin. That so you was, did all the, the pills too? I, yeah, I was terrible with it. I don't have cravings for anything but I have this feeling that I deserve to be an old man that smokes weed and listens to the Allman Brothers. I have that feeling. But I, but I mean, sobriety and, and a program has given me a life. Like people talk about life beyond your wildest dreams, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It really did it for me. And I can't, I, it's like weird to say it. Like lately, I've been, I work with a bunch of people within the show, outside of the show, in 12-step, like I'm trying to be of service. I do it for a million reasons. But I was talking to a friend of mine who keeps relapsing. You know, he's fucked. He keeps relapsing. Yeah. And he's he's just a workaholic. He, he, he does everything. And I'm like, and I, I couldn't believe I was saying it. I was like, you're not putting your recovery first. You need right. to put your recovery first. And yeah. when that came out of my mouth, I was like, who the fuck am yeah. I? I become that guy too. And it's, and it's weird. And I am not 100% comfortable with it. Me neither. I've become that guy. The way Stutz used to put that, by the way, was, listen, schmuck, that recovery has to, at least by 51 to 49%. It's got to be the most important thing or everything else. The house of cards comes down. Um, and he's right. Everything else can happen if you have that. Yeah. How, how long into, because you have, how many years do you have? AA sobriety, 17 years. It's a lot of, a lot of years. Yeah. It's a lot of years. And, and, how quickly did you get comfortable not drinking? Ooh, took at least a year, at least a year. I, I lost cravings for it. The first few months really, you know, were the classic, like, I can't believe I'm not going to drink right now. Right. I can't believe. And then it'd be like days were like, wow, so a martini's not coming at the end of this one, huh? Right. Fuck me. And then, you know, I got used to not drinking, but there was sort of a, avoid i remember um maybe six nine months in being like a this is boring and b what's the point i got really nihilistic like i don't i'm not any better like uh, i'm i'm now you know you want to find out why i drink stop drinking so i'm now aware of all this anger with with the devil at that point what you want to make that bargain with what you want it's like this isn't working anyway you do i mean i i I never it never drove me to think like i should drink again but i I got very like what's the point I, i got more towards the depressive end like this is just like nothing i'm not offering anyone any better i was a better Al-Anon sponsor when I was happier, my poker buddies couldn't stand me anymore. Right. I, I was like, you know, and you know what hit me in the middle of that? Uh, and I, I think it might've been talking to my old sponsor or Stutz or whatever. Um, it was Stutz. He used to call it um, the greatness of everyday living, mm. the greatness of everyday living. 
what he meant by that in this context was, I started thinking, David, about all the damage I wasn't doing. Like, it seemed like I was just sitting there having an um day, staring at the wall and being boring and vanilla everywhere and not much good. And I kind of was. But when I thought about where I was headed, like the, the plane that I, the, the nosedive that I pulled up out of that I had no doubt, like, think about what six to nine months in, if I was still using would have been and drinking would have been, would have been fucking bad. You know, I would have been making people around me really unhappy to say the least, Right including my fucking dog, like, right? Kids and dogs really like sobriety, don't they? They do. And just in every way, I'm like, I, just That's all the, I never, I never heard that. Kids and dogs yeah, love sobriety, yeah. they do. Yeah, I love that. Um, all the misery I just wasn't causing started to like, I felt good about that. Like, well, at least I'm not doing that shit. And that kind of gave me a little bit of happiness around my boring, dull existence. It's so easy to forget that though. Like, I want something else. I want more. I'm, it's not enough. I forget that. And just to hear you say it, it's like, yeah, like what a good fucking deal. Like I had a friend who just like, he had a lot of sober time and he just cheated on his wife, left his wife, mm. got into this relationship. He has kids and like he had just had a conversation with his kids and, and he was like, holy shit, I really, I, I fucked everything up. And he's sober, I think 17 years. See, to me... I mean, this is going to sound preachy, and I guess it is. See, to me, that's Al-Anon stuff. Right. That's the kind of stuff you address Al-Anonic, where it's not about, I'm going to drink at that, but at, what am I doing I'm going to use that? people. I'm going to use relations. Like, that's what he- Yeah, that's what I'm going to act out in some way. I'm going to, it's people, places, and things. Look, he, obvi- I'm sure, you know, that shit doesn't happen in a vacuum. I'm sure he had, I was unhappy in his marriage to one level or another. There wasn't a good connection, and it always takes two to tango with that stuff, and- you know, Alan gives you the the venue to to deal with that stuff. And I really feel, I know folks who have addressed it through an AA lens, which you can do, but I feel it's a little hamstringing. It's like, well, why not use the, the, the software? It's like the ultraviolet light is getting through the lens and fucking you up because the lens isn't ready to deal with that piece. It's, it's just not designed for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Because very early on in, in Al-Anonism, everybody goes into Al-Anon going, how am I going to get my husband sober if only my kid didn't drink? You know, Why can't they do what I want them to exactly. do? Exactly. And look, you're not wrong. Your husband and, and your kid should stop killing themselves with booze and drugs. But your obsession with them doing that and your faulty conclusion, belief that if they only they stop that, your life would be fine is ridiculous, actually. It's missing the whole point. Entirely. Because you're missing your own, well, why is, not that, look, anybody would find that important to them, but the fact that it's life and death for you and you're obsessed with it speaks to your own problem. Uh, you know, we say in Al-Anon is you can find happiness and serenity where the alcoholic is still drinking or not. And also what Al-Anons tend to underestimate is how their own obsession and nagging, scolding, complaining, fretting all over the alcoholic is, is making it worse. Right. Is making it worse. So it's it I'm very interested in something else. Like you're you're stacking self-care, self-work, wellness, spirituality, all this stuff on top of each other yeah. to feel better. And then that fucking Apu thing happens. Right. How do you how do you deal with that? Because like I didn't even mention Apu at the front of this thing because now it seems like I I watched that movie uh, the, the problem, problem with, with Apu. Apu. Yeah, I didn't even know the problem with Apu until I watched that movie. Well, yeah, that's part I of the didn't point. know. Uh, Most of us white folks do not. Right, and I and you know and 
like I, I mean, before I watched the movie, I would say Apu is such a a, a complex, beautiful, interesting character. Yeah, Apu what might have been a stereotype of an accent, but he was a complex character. If yeah. you watch that show, yeah, more loving, smarter, you know, very complex. And you and and basically, there's a comedian. What's the guy's name? Hari Kondabolu. Hari Kondabolu, who made a movie, a really brilliant movie called What's the Problem, the problem with Apu? Yeah. And he comes after you in this movie. Yeah, I'm Me, the white whale of the movie. You are, literally. and he's Ishmael, and you are Moby Dick. Yeah. And uh, how frustrating was that? Well, I'm glad you asked that, David. So what I program has given me, recovery has given me, is any crisis now, whether it's my own drinking or my own codependency or a terrible disappointment at work or a family tragedy or whatever trouble befalls me. You plug it in the program. I have to. Do you ever forget to no. plug it in? No. Plug it in? In I, moments. Uh, right, right. But it's amazing that we always have it. I forget for hours at a time and then I'm like, wait a second, I got to get back to basics here. I can say that after, well, now it's like 23, 24 years of recovery and 17 years of sobriety. I've turned into that guy too. I'm not like a Bible thumping AA guy, but I, I, the most happily, joyously, the most important thing to me in my life is that recovery. And I don't forget it. I have whatever I have, eight sponsees. It's the context of my life, happily so. I never thought I'd be that person. And I, not because I feel I should or it's the right thing to do, but because it really genuinely gives me um, joy, peace yeah. and joy. Yeah. And you know what it is? Being of service in that way, connecting. You know what we say is the, maybe you've heard this, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Sure. Know? That connection, there's nothing more real than somebody giving you their fifth step or even just a meeting saying, here's where I, what I'm really struggling with. You're saying, oh my God, I struggle with that too. Or here's my version of that. And that is such, such honest, genuine connection. And what I realized after a while is that that connection, whether it's somebody helping me or I'm helping somebody else, that feeling is what I, that dragon I was always chasing with booze and uh, You and feel a part of. And, and, and you don't feel alone. Exactly. You feel really con connected based on the truth of who I really am. So when he makes a movie. Yes. And Apu is such a lovable character to, you know, to me, he was. And all of a sudden he's saying, Hank Azaria, you fucked me over. Yeah. You know, basically, I mean, and it was shtick in the movie, but he does point a finger at you specifically. Yeah. How quickly can you turn to program in that situation? Give us what happened for I you. I turned to program immediately because I've been trained now to do that. So here's my rap about that. Where to start? Well, programmatically, right? It's always the same journey. The 12 steps, all they really mean is you come out of denial about something, whether it's your own alcoholism or a blind spot you might have had about a really well-intentioned cartoon character. That is all the things you just said, smart and loving and funny and whatever, which Hari Kondabolu would say as well. And you go into acceptance, which usually involves big feelings. Acceptance doesn't usually tickle. It's like, uh, oh boy. Usually, in fact, it can involve some grieving, like genuine grieving, like, oh my God, like real upset and anger and hurt. And, and then what do we do? The first thing we look at is our part, right or wrong. 
you know, you don't concern yourself with somebody else's part and say, well, they should, I'm being falsely accused of this, or I'm being misportrayed in that way, or they misunderstood that. Believe me, I had those thoughts and feelings. But what I know is I got to, if I'm working the steps, I'm looking at my part. You know, there's no step 4B that says, and now categorize everybody else's problem with this. See, I'm always in step 4B. Well, that's my, my go to. Me too. But we don't give in to that. Right. We, we're allowed to vent right, about right, that right, stuff. Right, exactly. And that's important. And that's the use of having a decent sponsor. That's part of feeling it. It's God damn it. What the fuck? And you do it at your sponsor and not, a, not on Twitter or not at Hari or wherever I might go, right, to, to throw gasoline on fires. So you look at your part. And even if you feel your part's 10% of the whole thing, that's the part you can work with. And then you get to, uh, how can I make up for this? So it was complicated with this because- It's a job. First, first of all, I didn't know. The answer of what's my part took me like two, three years to find out. How programs served me was the Al-Anon tools of zip the lip. Don't just do something, sit there, we like to say. Meaning if I don't know and I'm heavily in my feelings, which I was for quite a while, I, I know not to speak or act from there. I know I need to- keep my mouth shut, my ears open. The way it showed up in the, in, the, in the real world was I realized early on, I have to make a decision about whether I keep doing this voice or not. He pressured me a lot to do his documentary. And, and that's half the documentary. And that's, it becomes about that. And I didn't, like he kind of went at me on Twitter with all his followers about it. And it really- um, What was your experience in that whole thing? Like, how did it make you feel? Oh, terrible. I was very upset and nervous. Scary. And scared. Scared is a good word. Animal fear and panic. Well, it's like the, the townspeople coming after Frankenstein. Absolutely. We didn't have the term woke mob then, or I think at the time you might have still been saying PC pressure. It was pre-cancellation. It was pre-cancellation. I, I was one of the first people to come close to that line before it was even a term, you know, of getting canceled. So... Um, it was really scary. And, oh, and I, I, my partner at the time, my, my producing partner, she said, look, you know, I don't think you can do that documentary or even say anything about this until you have decided what you're going to do, like if you're going to keep doing this voice or not and why. And I go through this whole journey. I've done it. I've talked about it with Dax and on, on Code Switch on NPR and a couple other places. But this too. is a much more important podcast. Well, I understand that. Not not to throw your competition at you. But I'm just, a, I'm just well, kidding. Well, no, I'm from, totally a, well from a programmatic standpoint. This is probably the, le the least important podcast. Well, the point is what I, I knew I had to make that decision and I had to get on a soul level why or why not. You know, so how I, do you figure that out? Well, I, what I had to do was in the same way that I went and sat in recovery rooms, right? And you don't get the program right away. You don't understand what the hell's going on, right? right? Remember being a newcomer? You're like, the fuck? You, what's step or inventory. Five. Inventory what's itself. It? Yeah, even the terminology. So I had to acquaint myself with with social justice, with what it means, what racism is, what what's implicit bias, right? What's and these terms are scary. What's white privilege? What's a white supremacist society? Which we now I now have become a seminar leader. I've joined the group, the, the my favorite group that taught me the most, helped them form a nonprofit. I felt like part of my amends should be putting my money where my mouth is, because I made a lot of money off of Apu. I felt like I had done i didn't mean it i had very good intentions but so that's my, like a financial restitution that's part of it a big, I, I, it's a personal and a social one and also a financial one i felt like i needed to make some and that was the way i chose to do it I actually formed a foundation to give from there for social justice what's it called 
It's called the four through nine foundation, in fact, because it, it came out of steps four through nine. Yeah. I've taken my own personal inventory, looking at my part and deciding how I'm going to try to make this right. Amazing. How I'm going to be of service. So that took two, three years of really figuring out what the answer to that was. Let me ask you this, right? He's yeah. asking you to go on the movie. He's asking you to go in the movie. You don't. It makes the movie better that you didn't. Frankly. I guess. It does. It's For the movie's sake, it does. Then when it comes out, where do you see it? That said producing partner saw it and she went, yeah, it's not, it's not good for you. Um, it's not that bad. I was, I was, exactly. I was busy working at the time. I finally did see it. Uh, actually, I didn't. I, I knew I wasn't ready emotionally to see it. I kind of held it off and had people just report to me. And there was plenty of reporting on it for me to get the gist of what was going on there. I remember I actually, uh, the day I finally saw it, I brought my sponsor with me. I was like, you got to sit with me. Right. Well, I was so talking about program, right? I, you know, we know, right? There's certain things you're not going to face unless you have your support system. So what do you do when you're sitting there? You watch it in a, in a movie theater or in a house? I ended up watching it actually um i knew i was going to be with my sponsor and with a woman who had, had been educating me in social justice and where this might fit into all of that um very smart and i was gonna sit with them and that morning i kind of watched it myself and figured i'll watch it again with them uh, did it fuck you up when you watched yes, it? i'm sure it made me really upset up. and yeah. i was already pretty far along in processing a lot of it and then I met with them later in the day and we didn't need to watch it again, but we, we, we parsed a lot of it through together. And she was sort of helping me through a social justice lens and he was helping me through a recovery lens. And I was trying to just see my part. It's heavy duty because it's like, as somebody that I didn't understand, I didn't particularly, I understood it broad strokes. I didn't understand it really specifically until I watched it. And when you see all of these Indian Americans talking about their experience, yeah. you're like, oh my God. And then I, and then also being loyal to you and to the character, like I, I, I'm not obviously you watching it. You're like, motherfucker, they're coming after me. Yeah. Uh, but just, it's, it's really powerful. Now looking back on David, I swear I wouldn't trade it. Because not only did I start that journey to decide whether to stop doing the divorce or not, which took like two or three. What happened then was we all had so no idea what to do. You know, to this day, Apu hasn't uttered a word. And I think seven years now. He'll appear on screen sometimes, but he doesn't say anything. We haven't replaced the voice with an Indian actor, which we have done with all the other voices of characters like did Carl Why? and Lou. Why? Why what? Why do you replace Carl... Lou, Dr. Hibbert, and you don't replace Apu. And I don't mean you, I mean The Simpsons. Because there are, it's not, those characters aren't particularly stereotypical or problematic. And so if you replace the voice, you're really writing the wrong by giving an actor of color his own voice and representing, you know, that job, that voice, that character. There aren't tropes of the character that are problematic as well. With Apu, Apu's like a holdover from another time. So even if you just replace the voice, the voice itself is stereotypical and problematic. So what do you have somebody mimic it? If you have somebody do a more authentic version of it, which is better, but still just the fact that he's even a quickie mart attendant and the marginalization and stereotyping of that, to get into it a little bit, what got pointed out to me was for 20 years, 20 solid years, Apu was the only, if you turned on the television set and you were an Indian person in America, South Asian person, Apu was all you, all you got. 
That was it. Beginning, middle, end of your representation on television was Apu, a cartoon character voiced by a white guy, as Hardy pointed out. A white guy imitating another white guy trying to make fun of his dad. That's how he comedically called yes. it. Yes. Which was very true. I'm basing the voice on Peter Sellers' portrayal of the party yes. from the 60s. So it's, he was writer than he knew. That's a whole other amazing story, which I've told other places of, of that Peter Sellers connection. A hero of mine, much like Mel Blanc was. Mel Blanc, who did Speedy Gonzalez, as well as Bugs Bunny. And it's, it's so crazy because, you know, as a white person... You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, an actor. He, he's a teacher. He's an, he, and he's probably the biggest fan of yours in the world. And him and I spent years together, wasted watching The Simpsons. And he's a he's an actor. He's like, and and we were talking about Bradley Cooper in this new movie with his prosthetic nose, with the nose play, yeah. playing Jewish. And 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 I think you guys, I, I heard the explanation like why it's not the same as Apu, because Apu there was no other. I mean, it was before. Harold and Kumar or all these other like Mindy, the Mindy yeah. show or Ms. Marvel. And it's great that there's representation now. And I feel like this weird pang of guilt because I miss Apu and I miss that character. Do you ever miss him? No, because I've now been a little bit, it I have a little bit of PTSD people. around it the whole too thing. many people. And also it has, and I, I feel really bad about, there was a lot of good in it, but, Implicit bias, racism, institutional racism, whatever you want to call it, in our society, in American culture, is a result of blind spots more often than not. Sure, there's some out and out hate, that, but that's that's kind of the not it's not the majority. Well, it's deep and it's built on years and years and years exactly. and, and deep deep problems that aren't that the comfort of me enjoying a character that I am privileged to just enjoy without feeling those things isn't worth my good feeling in the first place. I mean, yeah, you know, we have a whole humor rap we do. You know, people want to laugh at what they think is funny because they want to feel wholly human. They want to cry at what makes them sad. They want to eat when they're hungry. They want to laugh at what they feel is funny. To be told that's not funny or that it's like, well, it is to me. Well, I work at Katz's Deli, right? Katz's Deli is one of the funniest places in the world. It's run 99% by Dominican people. Those Dominican people make fun of me. I mean, I had barely worked there on a day to day basis. But when I did, I was fresh off of heroin. I had been a manager, got fired. And all day I was treated like they called me Jew. They, yeah. they would call me Jew in Spanish. And it was always funny, you know, but maybe it's because they were an oppressed people oppressing me in a servile situation. But it was funny. And we enjoyed each other's differences, period. And, and like, I think the working man gets to make fun of the other working man. And I think once there's money and all this stuff in there, it, it changes. Yeah, there's classism. Yes. And, uh, rule of thumb, if you're punching up, okay. If you're punching even, okay. If you're punching down, it's a problem. Maybe don't do it. Right, right, right. Or do it, but know that you're punching down and know that there may be some unintended impact or that your blind spot around it, if you haven't considered it, might create some negative impact, even if it's really funny, or even if it's a lot of it is really good, like Apu was, right? So part of our, we, we prefer the term relative advantage to white privilege, because white privilege is very triggering for a lot of folks. But part of our relative advantage as white people is that we don't ever have to think about it. The blind spot itself is the, is the advantage. I, and I never thought of it. I'm a Jew from Queens imitating whatever came through the TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Peter Sellers, Right, he's please does your dog bad. So this French accent is funny to me. 
and strange love. Yeah, he was Doctor Strange Love, also hilarious. And he did Harundi v. Bakshi in the party. Now, to my fifteen-year-old uh, ear and eye, it's another the, color. They're in the all palette. hilarious. Exactly. Now, so I spit out, I spit back Apu when somebody at a mic in 1988 goes, hey, can you do an Indian accent? I'm like, I had Peter Sellers, you know, I told you, I memorizing everything I saw and mimicking it. I had Peter Sellers ready to go. And it took 25 years for that character to get blowback because when Peter Sellers portrayed that character, there was tremendous pushback from Indian people. I didn't know that. That's not part of my experience as a, not in my groundwater as a white guy in America at that point. Racial humor was just fair enough. Well, the fact that there was no blowback against Apu for so long. Exactly. I mean, there was, we just never got to us. Right. I never heard it. Right. However, people felt a certain way about it. There was no voice for it. There was no venue for it. There was no, I, I one guy, I don't know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, a guy in Soho, I walked by uh, a South Asian guy sitting outside an art gallery said, hey, Hank Azaria, why do you make fun of my people? You know, and I think I said to him, dude, if you want to imitate Jews from Queens, uh, have at it. Then I, I walked back by like two hours later. He was still there and he went, hey. I was like, what? I figure round two was coming. He said, I like your work, which is very similar to what actually happened with Hori Kondabolo in the documentary. He loves The Simpsons. He, he loves, loves Apu. Loves Apu. By the way, we're very good friends now, Harry and I. Um, we've had a real. I saw you do a little uh, promo for his uh, YouTube special. Exactly, and we're uh, we're thinking about going to colleges together and talking about. Um, you should. We we did Code Switch together on NPR. I think there's really a lot of healing and value in us telling each our ends of this story. I mean, I think there there could be a great podcast too. There could be. He's but a great podcast, David. That's recovery, right? That is recovery. So instead of drinking at it or whatevering or at pissed it, pissed or feeling it's mine, or self righteous anger, which is Bill W says, is, "What is the province of the normal man?" Whatever it is, right. the the, the lug. We can't afford the luxury, the luxury of self righteous anger. Yeah. So looking at my part, it leads to connection. You know, it does, and I, I'm not blind to, you know, some things I felt were unfair to me and I felt victimized. But what I came to realize in that context was the irony. So I feel miscategorized, misportrayed, unfairly treated. Well, Apu, like it or not, it wasn't intentional, but the impact of Apu, which didn't match its intent because of my blind spots and other, um, my colleagues at The Simpsons' blind spots, we mischaracterized and misportrayed and unfairly treated an entire race of people living in our country, as is attested to by a lot of the actors and the Surgeon General of the United States, or at the time anyway. And, you know, I got to I got to accept my part in that just because I didn't intend it doesn't mean I don't own um, I didn't, I'm not responsible for it and create racial humor in this country. I didn't, if you want to go back far enough, I didn't own slaves, but I am accountable for its legacy as it lives in our society, which is mostly in the blind spots for white folks like myself, you know? So mindfulness around that and realizing, you know, to me, all that, even as hard as it was for me, and I'm not a suicidal guy, I never was even at my bottom, but Another way I knew I needed program and recovery and a 12-step approach was I felt about as bad as I did at my worst. Right. You know? And But because you had program, it could galvanize the good part in you. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a good thing. I knew there was a place to take it where I could process this. And I had faith, quite literal faith, that if I hold up my end and I look at my part and I work four through nine, that's why it's the four through nine foundation, 
there's going to be an outcome here that is happy, joyous, and free. That is for the greatest good. I can't see it now. How many times, right, does things show up? And we're sure it's, it's not what we want. It's that acceptance thing. Accepting doesn't mean liking. In fact, it shows up as I hate it. I don't like this. It's not what I would choose. It's not what I was trying for. I failed. It blew up. I just had a project I loved, the idol, that just blew, blew up in a bad way. Everybody hated it, you know, and, and it became this scourge, this example of what's wrong with everything, right? At least you still had Mo, though. At least I still got Mo. Of course. I can go back. I got my day job. Yeah. I mean, you had so many. You were diversified. Well, yeah, yeah. So my portfolio is diversified. But, you know, so that was a, a, a smaller disappointment compared to this or a bad outcome. But I really do have what I'd have to call faith. That Because now with 23, 24 some odd years of evidence behind me, I know that everything that showed up as frighteningly bad news um, was at the time for me. But there was an incredibly valuable lesson in it, always a much more valuable lesson than if I had just gotten what I wanted. Did you have spirituality prior to recovery? Yes and no. I wasn't in, raised in a religious house at all. My sister, the one who's 12 years older than I am, is an astrologer, spiritual in a way that we used to call new age. Right. And uh, genuinely, and I grew up raised around that. And kind of had that going on. So I had sort of this belief that there was something. And I even had some experiences that I would call mystical because there were always psychics and people around in her community. And most of whom I felt were just charlatans, but one or two I couldn't explain. And then I had a couple of my own experiences that I couldn't explain. You, what, did you have a good one? Like, like what was like, I see that there's something that happened. What happened? When I was about to shoot the birdcage, my wisdom tooth was coming in and I had avoided it for years, as good alcoholics do, right? But it was bad. And this was like almost 30 years ago. And I was about to start shooting and it wasn't as simple now pulling out a, a wisdom tooth. It was more of an ordeal. And I was afraid that if I had it done, I was going to miss the first week of shooting or something. And um, my other sister actually, who's very spiritual as well, Gave me a book by Sylvia Brown, is a known medium, communicates with the dead and psychic. And she has a meditation in it where you imagine um, you, there's a stained glass window and it's purple and it's blue and it's green and it's yellow and the light comes through and it bathes you in it. And you picture yourself in this room. And I picture myself surrounded by, uh, in a classroom when I was a kid, I felt safe and with, with pictures of all Mel Blanc characters around me, like, like Mel Blanc cells. That's comforting to me. I did this meditation because like, I'll try anything because I, I want to, I must have fallen asleep in the middle of meditation and I woke up with this like electric current feeling like in my jaw, like literally like an electric current. And um, it freaked me out and it lasted like five or 10 seconds. And when it wore off, there was, pain was gone in my jaw and it never came back. I eventually had the, the wisdom tooth out because they kept with x-rays telling, they're like, does this hurt? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, that has to come out. So it never hurt again, but it was like an impacted whatever. This cosmic mysterious. And I eventually had it out. So that was one. I can't explain that. I don't know what was going on. I, I did it again, that meditation a couple of weeks later, and the same exact thing happened, except this time the electricity felt like it was going up my right arm. And as it was crossing my chest, I got afraid like what it would do to my heart or something. And I kind of tightened up and it stopped. So that was one. I can't explain that. I, I, but it happened to me. This is not anecdotal. 
My friend didn't tell me that happened. It's not a friend telling you I saw a ghost. This, I can't explain. I'm not saying it's anything. All I know is that's what happened to me. No, I wanted spirituality before I had 12 step, but I never claimed it until I got into this. You right. Know? Like, and, and making that decision has been like the greatest tool that I've developed, the ability to make a decision. I want to talk about higher power because it is a weirdo concept. It is, and especially I, for a, for Jews from New York City. Very much so. Because I never, like when I first got sober, I, I there's a kid I grew up with named Joseph Schwartz. He grew up on the Upper East Side. He became a rabbi. And when I got sober, I reached out to him and I was like, higher power, higher power. My, my Judaism is definitely not happening. Can you give me some Jewish higher power? And he didn't. He didn't. Didn't give me any. Just Jewish. didn't have it or what? I don't know. Like, you know, all that my experience around Judaism is you are the chosen people. You know, Israeli irrigation is amazing. Israeli tanks are better than Jordanian tanks. That was my Hebrew school experience. That's not exactly a beautiful religious There's message. No, yeah, there was no spirituality in it. And, and Rabbi Schwartz, God bless him, didn't bring me. And so I wound up finding my spirituality strictly through 12 step. Strictly. Me, me, well, I had a version, and this is a this is a way to talk about ACA. I think too. Good because we need to know about it. So my my sponsor, my personnel, and it's like, look, you're gonna notice there's a lot of God talk in these steps. So you got to know who you're talking to if you're gonna be praying and working steps around it and and basing things, turning your life over to it. So you got to know who you're talking to, God, as we understand Him. Him, by the way, sorry, but that's the language in the book. I was like, hmm, I don't, I don't know at all. I don't believe in some sky daddy. I don't know that I really do have any kind of belief here. He said, well, let's figure it out. And he said to me, this guy was one of the most spiritual guys I ever knew. He said to me at first, it was just the wisdom of the group. You know, it would, the, the, group I, I would, of drunks. Group of drunks, group of al group of people in recovery that, all I know is I walked in there and I heard stories as bad or worse than mine. The people were calm and happy. To me, that's enough. Whatever that is, yeah. you know, I'll take it. So we start looking at that and I realized that I'm pretty sure whatever God is fairly punishing. And the way that came down to me was I was like, well, I want to learn lessons, but I'm scared of how I'm going to learn them. You know what I mean? I don't want to get my ass kicked too, any worse than it's already been. And he pointed out to me, well, you, that, you believe in kind of a punishing God, don't you? I'm like, I guess. And I remember like I heard, if you want to get over your fear of Dobermans, expect 20 Dobermans at your door. I really didn't want those Dobermans, you know? And he's like, well, that's your idea of what's going to happen and, and what a higher power is. I mean, that's pretty punishing. And what it kind of came out in the wash was that's how I felt about my mom and dad. I mean, when we're, that's our higher power when we're kids. Right. So pretty much how they were is how we're going to imagine God. that's going to go one way or another. And that's where we start to get into adult children of alcoholics, adult children of dysfunctional families, because that's so ingrained and so implicit that we don't think about it. It's just there. And See, once you look at Alan, things alanonically and from recovery, you realize it's not just the drunk, somebody's drinking or somebody's insane sobriety. It's people, places, and things. It's show business itself. It is my job. It's the acting profession. It's, you know, society. It's New York it's, City. It's, it's whatever. It's New York City. It's 
racism in America. It's the Jewish experience. Every ethnicity has their tale of of the the epigenetic trauma, as we call it, that's just passed down through right. that we deal with. That's completely in play. So it was interesting how that hit me, but interesting to me anyway. So, uh, oh, higher power. So this guy says, well, you believe in a punishing God. I'm like, guess fair enough. I guess I do. So that's not going to be so great for our purposes if we're terrified of the person we're turning our will and our lives over to. Step three says we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. What the hell does that mean? I saw a great talk in an AA meeting in L.A., a men's meeting. You had to have a year sobriety to even share. And you had to share on topic. Like Pacific Group or something? It was not Pacific Group. You had to share on topic. Or the silverbacks, as we call them, the old yellers, we called these guys, nice. would stand up and glare at you if you were going into a drunkalog. You had to stare, share on the step or on the topic. And if you, they asked you to share on the step, you had to research it, give a 20-minute presentation that included quotes and research. And So the guy giving the step three talk was great that day. And he said, well, what's... He said, care of God as we understand it. Turn our will in our lives. Like, what does that mean, you know? What's the care of God? He said, we're not at God's will yet. That's step 11. We pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. So we're not, we're nowhere near God's will. We're at our will. What's that? And our lives. So what's the care of God? And he, he said, I always get annoyed with people who say, well, turn it over, man. I got to turn that over. Like, what's turn it over mean? I'm supposed to like give up and stop and not tie my shoe. Like, God, I can get my shoelace. Like, it is very hard concept to, to grasp in the beginning. Like totally I used is. to get so angry when people would tell me to turn it over. And it was always around Linda. It was always around that and, and me wanting it to be the way I wanted it right. to be. And you have to turn it over. You can't control the outcome. Right. And that turn it over. I was like, turn what over? Yeah, it means I give up control of my life and hope that it just. Yeah, hope it's okay. You know, as what, uh, what's it carry into it? Jesus take the wheel. I right. Mean, so always annoyed this guy. And he said, so care of God, as he understands it, is four through nine. That's how we meet God halfway, wherever you think God is, is you look at your part. You say, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I harmed this person, harm that person. You say, why am I doing that? My sponsor was really big on what is actually an adult children concept, which is he would say, I don't know how you get rid of a defect if you don't look at why you started in the first place. It's really hard. So when do you, this is some kind of therapy they do, like when do you remember last feeling that or acting that way? When's the time you felt it the most or did it the most? When's the earliest memory you have of feeling that way or doing that? You know, and that started to unlock things for me. And I realized, you know, these defects, these, we call them survival traits in ACA, these things I was doing that I owe amends for. I, there was a reason I did them. And I had to literally survive my, difficult childhood I had to get through it and those became real habits that i carried survival habits. survival traits the, the way they put in ac is survival traits are like the branches and the, the fruit they bear are the defects wow so and there's a laundry list of survival so traits. how did you find your higher power okay so i still am not i'm going with I, my sponsor said for now you're going to borrow my higher power that's always nice yes i said okay I have faith in you. I, you seem calm and happy. I'd like that. I want what you have. And your story's worse than mine, actually. So then it was the wisdom of the group. I had made real connections with people. And I, I just found that 
going to meetings and sharing honestly. And that fifth step is something, right, where you admit to God, yourself, and another human being the exact nature of your wrongs. That That's no day at the beach when that comes up. I'm going to tell somebody no. every shameful thing I've ever done, everything I've ever done wrong. I never thought it'd be a million years I would do anything like that. And then you do that, and a guy goes, yeah, I did that. Like, oh, I did worse than that. Like, that's all you got? That's not that bad. Like, that's not that bad? It's like, no. Look, some people have committed murder, and some people, it's, it's bad. Now, I don't know how God or higher power enters into all that. All I know is, like, the metaphor I like is, I also don't know, we're recording on electronic equipment that is plugged in right in front of me. You put that plug in and this shit works. I could have an electrician come here and explain it to me. I still would not understand. No. That's how I feel about this stuff. I've always felt about it with, with records. Like how does a needle on the record make a sound that's a trumpet and a bass based on vibrations? How can that possibly Or television. Happen? Right. How's that happening? It's incredible. So, and somebody could come here and explain it to you. I still wouldn't understand it. And you wouldn't it. understand yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I feel like all the four through nine, all this stuff is me plugging into something. I don't know what it is. All I know is shit comes on. I feel better and I, I take right action and it works. Oh, I here's a dream I had. It's another semi-spiritual experience. Early in recovery, you, ever, you know what lucid dreaming is? Yeah. So you become aware you're dreaming. And some people, you can fly, you can do all kinds of things. I had, was having a lucid, I, was, I dreamt I was at a Hollywood party. And a fancy Hollywood party, and I became aware I was dreaming. And I got told that when you're lucid dreaming, if you ask people or even things in the dream what they represent, they'll tell you. So you did that? I did that. So I see this really beautiful like Hollywood power couple. Right. They, they weren't famous, but they're, they're sitting on a couch at this party. I sit with them and I say, who are you guys? What do you represent? And the man said, we're your higher power. Wow. I said, really? Yeah. I said, well, I guess I should ask you, you know, uh, to tell me something. What do you got for me? What am I supposed to be doing here? Do you know what the guy said? He said, uh, your life is not going to turn, really turn out like you want it to. I was like, fuck. I I think I woke up with a start. I was really devastated by that. And um, you know what I realized? That was a really deep seated fear of mine. Right. And that you're when, not going to get what you want. Yeah. And then my life's not going to turn out how I want. Right. I'll tell you something. Apu is an, would be an example of how my life didn't turn out how I want. Would I have chose that then? I don't think so. Right. But when I go into fear, that is what rules me. Whatever I'm really afraid of becomes my higher power. Right. And I would say that when you were a heroin addict, guess what your higher power was? Heroin. Exactly. When I was obsessed with my ex-wife, guess what my higher power was? her when i was a drunk and 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 chasing women all over the place what was my higher power then Sex and so it's not whether you believe in a higher power or not it's what is it right something is i love that that's very 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 smart and it's very it's like plug and play for me like my higher power was never a, a thing or a person or like I, I i can't even say the word sky daddy i get all i get all blushy but my higher power became fucking everything. When I read, when I heard God is everything or God is nothing, I was like, fuck it. God can just be literally everything, meaning our connection, meaning this ridiculous sun going right. down, meaning the fact that, that oceans exist and whales swim in them. And, and very and, unlikely. Exactly. Einstein, every, you either believe everything's a miracle or nothing is. Exactly. 
and it's that or greatness of everyday living. My right? and my my sponsor, who I who I decided would be my sponsor, it was right after Chris died. I was out of the program. Uh, I was like, you know, we were just doing the show. We weren't really practicing the program or anything. And that's when he died. And I was like, I got to get back to the fucking meeting. And I went back and uh, I heard a guy just sharing that his God was love. And if he leads with love, everything else follows. And I was like, that sounds like enough. Solution, connection, wisdom of the group. A group conscience to me, I know we all hate business meetings because the most awkward things in the world, but I've come to love them because they're, to me, they're in action. It's like, well, this is weird and awkward and often horrible. And yet the group conscience wins and the, over the greatest good and it doesn't always go my way. And I speak up and advocate for what I think it should be. I'm in a horrible moment. You want to hear something horrible? Sure. I like took a commitment at the last, I mean, I'll figure this out. I have a plan, but I did something really fucked up. I took a commitment whenever, I think in June, right? Around yeah. there. I do the Tuesday meeting, which is the Just For Today meeting in our group. And I collect the money every week. And I like they haven't collected it. And I just kind of spend it. <laughs> oh, geez. But I, I've kept track of how much it oh, was. So you know what you week. owe. Yeah, I know what I owe. You know owe, what you need to replace. But it's like, it's something that I do, think about. Do, David, do you have it? I have it. Okay. It's something I think about every day. That I have not given this well, you money. Well, you're the group in amends. Well, I don't know who to, I don't know who's taking the money. I have to give them. The, and my favorite dopey stories are the fucking drug addicts who like become the treasurer and <laughs> spend their money on drugs. And I've become that. But just like I have, I'm just spending the money in my daily life. I have the money. I'm gonna make the amend. <laughs> I'm gonna turn it in. It's just this weird fear that I have over my head. Listen, you fucking came and brought the recovery hardcore. I'm Mr. Recovery Guy. Now, there I am. I go through all that. And to me, that's about when I get upset, taking that pause. How do you do that? You don't vent at the person you're venting about. You vent at your sponsor. You get it out. And then you take a time out and you look at your part, if there is one. And then you own, it. It, you own it. And then if there's something to say, which could be a boundary or a request or an, an amends, whatever it is, you, you come at it calmly. But um, that takes, my old sponsor, Raj used to say, they're called spiritual practices because they take practice. Right. And it took me years to get some agency with that. That's why I say, you know, because I, what I left out was that spirituality of my sisters, I came to reject. I felt like there's a version of it that is an addiction unto itself. It's the, the woo-woo. Exactly. I got it. And I felt embarrassed by it and let down by it. And any and when anybody mentioned the word spiritual, I reacted the way some like lapsed Catholics feel about hearing about that. Like, oh no, 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 no. Right. It's not that. I'm not that I don't want to do that. No, I heard spiritual, I'm like, oh God. Do we have to be spiritual? Because to me I have a lot of weird associations with it. So for me to come back to feeling that I, I am a spiritual man. I, I claim my version of it. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for bringing the super spiritual dopey. It's very rare we get there, especially from Hank Azaria. <laughs> who was who your favorite uh, Simpsons character that you got to play? It's Apu. Mo it's Apu. <laughs> exactly. It would be hilarious if I said Apu. Um, Mo is closest to my heart. Because, because he's so fucked? Well, he... Because he's so beautifully fucked? Yeah, he's just everything bad he's just every low talk about a shadow figure right it, there's nothing really happy about mo and he, you know i used i used to bartend i joke like if i didn't become mo the bartender i'd probably still be hank the bartender and 
I don't know. I just the I greatest love- was when he got the plastic surgery, and he, and he became and, handsome, and he could get what he wants, and and he the, and then all gets the car falls on his face. <laughs> <It's> so good. <laughs> Listen, Hank, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, so much depth, so much stuff that if I can fucking pick up a little bit of this, like my family is going to be better off. So, so thank you. Anytime I come to an ACA meeting, uh, you know where to find me. I'm down. Every, every more, it's early, 730 Upper West Side. See, I live too far away. I live in, uh, in Suffolk County. Oh, you're not even here. Oh, this is your dad's place. No, this is my dad's place. Oh, you're on the island. I live in Sayville, in, in Long Island. If, if, well, if we'll you, talk. We will talk. And, and I'll be at uh, Dopeyverse. Dopeycon. Dopeycon. <laughs> Dopeycon IV. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I like Dopeyverse, but that's all right. Thank you so much. David, thank you. This is a long conversation. Thank well, it's you. cool, though. Yeah. So seriously, Dopey's much better than uh, Armchair Expert, though, right? Yes. Yes, thank, it is. Thank you. No recency bias. Very good. Very good. All right. Hank Azaria bringing the hardcore recovery, codependency, Alanonic, dopey episode. And next time we get Hank Azaria, it's going to be all Superintendent Chalmers, the sea captain, arg squiddy. I have nothing against you. I just wanted to find the gold in your belly. And, uh, and all those good things. And maybe... Is there any way Hank Azaria does a poo at DopeyCon? Dun, dun, dun. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Look for a conversation around Hank Azaria, Apu, The Simpsons on Dopey Patreon. Head on over to Dopey Patreon. You might hear me and the great Ray Brown talking uh, about this Hank Azaria episode, trying to add value to Patreon. But... I loved this talk with Hank. It was totally different. And in the future, we're totally going to read him some really fucked up dopey emails and see how he responds to that. But before we go, I would like to read, or I think I will play a dopey voicemail. Here we go. Just got it. Great stoner cutting dopey voicemail. And if you are still listening at the end of the show, you know what to do. Write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Write a, send a voicemail. Be in touch. Don't be a fucking stranger. Here is uh, a voicemail. I think I got it today. Hey, Dopey Nation. Uh, shout out Dave. Shout out Chris. Shout out Alan. Shout out Hot Wheels. Shout out Fentanyl J. Shout out uh, Jake from West Virginia. So I had a story I've been wanting to tell for a while just because I get reminded of it like every day, but we've had some episodes lately about focused on like pot and cutting, and I've was big into both um, a while ago. So I was like 16 at the time, and I was on vacation with some friends in like, it was either Cape Cod or Block Island. I don't remember where it was at this point, but somewhere over there, somewhere on the beach. And... There was a movie back then, came out in like 2007, called The Union. It was like this pot documentary that showed like how great pot was. And it was like, we watched it all the time because it was like, pot's the best. (laughs) It's the greatest thing ever invented. And uh, you would just watch it and be like, why is it, why is this stuff illegal? Like it just drove us nuts. Um, And 
so we were in anyways, we were just wicked drunk and obviously smoking pot. And we were watching the movie again for like the 30th time. And I just like, I had, I was like, this is, I was like so passionate about pot. I thought everyone was dumb that wasn't smoking it. And I thought everyone should smoke it. So I was already drunk. And then I wandered into the basement of this house we were renting. And I found like just a case of Mike's Hard Lemonade. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. It was like the the house. Like it was just in the house. Like it was in their basement. (laughs) So I just popped down the road myself, just started chugging. I chugged like eight of them. And again, I was already drunk. And I was like, shit, what do I do with them? So I, they had a, in the basement, there was insulation in the ceiling, like that fiberglass stuff. So I was just jamming them up there. And I was like, ah, that'll work. So I just think that somewhere out there, somebody's going to pull that down one day and just get rained on with a bunch of glass bottles. So sorry if anyone listening lives in that house. But fast forward to the night, I am wicked drunk. Um, and again, just like super passionate about pot. So I, I had a knife, pocket knife, and I went, all right, I'm going to give myself a tattoo. I have like sleeve now and a bunch of other tattoos, but I was like, all right, this is my first tattoo. I want to be, oh, I love pot. I want, I want the world to see how passionate I am about this stuff. It needs to be legal. So I sat in the bathroom and just started go hacking away at my arm. Like to this day, I don't know how, being this drunk, I don't know how I didn't like destroy my arm, but I was just like, and it's a pocket knife, so it's not like wicked sharp, so I was like scraping it, I don't even know how to describe it, but like even drunk, it was like, it really hurt, but I was just going at it, and I did it, and I didn't tell anyone, everyone else was already passed out, I go to bed, I wake up in the morning, to my friend just above me just smacks it as hard as he can i wake i'm like he's like what the fuck is that and i look and i'm like oh fuck so i put a i took a sock out of my uh clothes and i ripped out (laughs) i cut it in half and wrapped around my arm and i was like it's a sweatband so no one will notice it even though it's a (laughs) it's a sock so i'm wearing a sock this like bloody sock on my fucking forearm at the beach. And some of the other kids we were with, we started like wrestling. And I was in the sand wrestling with just like this open wound. And the just got so coated in sand. And like for like a month afterwards, it was the most infected thing I've ever had on my body. Like I can still smell it to this day, like rotten flesh. Like, I felt sick. My arm was red. It was huge. And I somehow, like, it just fixed itself. But, oh, it hurt so bad. Like, the weeks after, just cleaning it. And, like, ah, it's still, it's scarred over. I still have it to this day. I've since tattooed, like, 90% of it. So you can't see it. But I left, like, two leaves of it. Just, like, sticking out. Um, Just, like, this little pot leaf on my arm. Two leaves of it, like, sticking out. So... Just as a reminder of where, where I've been in life. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that. And then, of course, I got home and my parents were like, what is that? I'm like, nothing. No, there's nothing there. And then 
you know, it ended up, I locked myself in the bedroom, barricaded the door. They were like, let me in there. My mom was like 90 pounds, busted the door down, rips off the thing, goes, what the fuck is that? And I went, it's a design. And she was like, it's a pot leaf. And I went, no, it's just a design. And I don't know, I just, I just wanted addict shit, just lie your way through everything. Just deny, deny, deny. Um... So yeah, that's that's my story, pot and gut and so. Anyways, I I love the podcast. I've listened twice through the whole thing. Um, I'll probably do a third time eventually because I just I love the earlier episodes. Um, so yeah, so yeah. That's Tony. What a great story. I love that. Fucking Tony hacking up his arm. And he wrote, "Dave, love the podcast." So I figured I'd send in a story about hacking a potential or a pot leaf tattoo into my arm. Tony. I love how passionate he was about weed. I was very passionate about weed, too, if you didn't know. I love, loved weed. I wonder, like, I don't know, we did a Patreon video, and I said my usual shtick about how I want to be old and smoke bong hits and listen to the Allman Brothers, and I was with my handsome friend Evan, and he's like, I don't know if you really would. And um, that's the question. Who's to say? This was... um. It's a very exciting time in the world of Dopey. Hank Azaria was somebody that Chris and I had talked about having on the show a lot. We got Hank through Joe Schrank, which rhymes. Maybe I should have said this earlier in the show. Joe Schrank is the reason we got Hank Azaria, and Joe Schrank was always close with Hank. And Chris used to tell me that, and I'd be like, well, how could we get Hank Azaria? And uh, I didn't think it was ever going to be possible And it all happened through the grace and generosity of Joe Schrank. And Joe Schrank and Hank will be at DopeyCon. I will cajole Simpsons voices out of Hank. And um, I'm really excited for DopeyCon. I want to thank everybody out in the Dopey Nation. Dopey Reddit has been on fire of late. Scott Wick is penning heartfelt letters to Fentanyl J. Fucking KDB is killing it. Uh, helping me in the Patreon Zoom. Steph is is rocking dopey Zoom with Liz Ann. Steve Schneider is the linchpin of the whole organization. I just have to give uh, a bevy of shout-outs all over the place. Fucking, I don't know if Matt Wiedemeyer Carroll is, is still listening, but, you know, he's always waiting for tonight. Edward Alcaser is the Ener- Energizer Bunny of, of dopey art. He, he's like as if the dopey fairy was reborn in a mail from Yonkers. And a big shout-out to to Misty. Big shout-out to former Dopey producer Sam. Huge shout-out to uh, Ray Brown, who will be at DopeyCon. Who knows what he's going to play? Is he going to play this Dopey Dopey podcast? Is he going to play DopeyCon 2? Is he going to bust out Home Sweet Heroin? What do you guys want to hear from Ray Brown? Who are you guys most excited about to see at DopeyCon? Anyway, anybody I missed, Piz with the fucking killer artwork, Britta busting her ass, making so much artwork, Claire doing dopey TikToks and ordering off-brand merch. It's all happening out there in the doposphere. So stay strong, everybody, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are 
hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times, and though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. This thing's hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> sit through the uh, big inbox emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. I, if not, I know it kind of sucks. Alright, I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.